0: Pastor Stephen, as he comes, guys.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for coming in. I recognize a former student and dear friend, Jason. It's good to see you. Did you guys come with, how many of you came with Jason or from his ministry? Awesome. Well, thank you guys for, for coming. Where is it? Evansville, right? Indiana. So thanks for making the trek. Is there a clock anywhere? Okay, got it. Just don't want to go too long, otherwise it could end up being like 5.30 and we're still going. Is that okay? <laughs> uh, just to give you a, a brief history of, of my life, I uh, graduated, my wife and I graduated from the Brownsville Revival School Ministry. How many of you have ever heard the Brownsville Revival? And so that was really where I got immersed into supernatural things and experienced a lot of the power of god and there was a woman named teresa castleman and she was the director of deliverance ministry for the, uh, brownsville assembly and as a young man i felt called to deliverance but i didn't know a lot about it the only paradigm i had was people yelling at someone as they rolled on the floor screaming and you keep yelling at them until they stop rolling that was kind of my paradigm of deliverance ministry but uh, this woman named Teresa Castleman, she would sit in the balcony and if you're familiar with the revival, every night they would have altar calls and thousands of people would run to the altar and this, this heavy presence of God would come and people would start manifesting. There would be a lot of falling and shaking and screaming and laughing and, and so what this woman did is she would sit me next to her and she would show me what was the flesh, what was demonic and what was holy. And then she would walk me down with her, and she would show me how to sort of deal with each and every scenario. And so I learned a lot about discerning of spirits uh, early on in my ministry. And uh, I went from that revival to Paris, France, because I wanted to go to the darkest place in the earth. And if you study some of the history of Paris, France, North African witch doctors get trained in Paris, France underneath notre dame there's a catacomb where the witches go and there's more registered witches and warlocks than there are clergy in paris france and if you go to the louvre which is the center point of their demonic worship the freemasonry uh... there's ancient egyptian monuments from the time of pharaoh that are there in the Louvre. and uh... so i went there and uh... got thrown into the deep into the pool concerning deliverance i was doing deliverance on homosexual prostitutes and witches and warlocks I had witches coming to my meetings and they were shaking chicken bones as I'm preaching now as a young man I was like bring it on this is awesome this is what I signed up for <laughs> and uh, there was this one meeting I'll tell you a funny story I'll try not to get sidetracked by a lot of stories just for the sake of time but I'll share a couple with you just to stir your heart uh, I was in this meeting and this is one of those meetings I would say it's one in, probably the top five meetings i've ever been in power and anointing wise and uh... the witches were there they were cursing me and uh... as i'm preaching it just seemed like this heavens just opened uh... some people call them portals i don't use that language or get into that kind of stuff but there was something that came into the room and people just started falling out of their chairs and i was like man what is going on And it seemed like everybody on the left side of the room were manifesting demons and everyone on the right side of the room were having angelic encounters. And so the intercessors grabbed this white sheet and they were waving it up and down, sort of like a a hoopah in a Hebrew wedding, where the people would walk under the white sheet. And uh, sure enough, everyone who walked under that white sheet, it was like an angel was there with a baseball bat just taking people out. I mean, we were literally stacking bodies over in the corner as they walked underneath this white sheet. So all this supernatural activity was happening. And uh, I saw these. this one witch. She completely bent backwards to where her head was touching her, her ankles. And uh, the eyes rolling in the back of their head. I mean, it was just a crazy meeting. I uh, saw one person levitating. This one girl turned green. She turned the color green, and her hand was all curled up. And uh, when we broke the fear of rejection off her life, her hand popped open, her color came back, the spirit left, and she ended up being the worship leader of that church one year later. And uh, so in in this meeting, there was this man standing there. He was an African man, and uh, his eyes were like black marbles. It was just completely black. And he was showing a lot of aggression. Now, I love to pray for people in Spanish. You can really get into it. Like, fuego, mas fuego, senor. You know, you can, I don't know if you all know what I'm talking about. Um, but I'm in France, and so, you know, the the French word for fire is feu. You can't get into that. Le feu de Dieu. You know, it's like feu. You can't really, you know... And so I walk up to this guy. I know when I touch him, something crazy is going to happen. So I walk up to him. I'm like, Fuh. <laughs> This guy grabs me and takes me to the ground, and we're rolling on the floor. And I'm, I'm just rolling, and I'm using this terminology. I'm like, I bind you in Jesus' name. I take authority over you. And all the French intercessors are commanding it to leave, but he's just squeezing me even stronger. And so then I finally whisper, I say, I take authority over you in the name of Jesus. And all of a sudden he starts vomiting blood all over me. And uh, he had been drinking blood libations and chicken blood before he came. And so this was, a, this was a crazy meeting. This was a wild meeting. But I got thrown into the deep end of the pool concerning deliverance ministry. And so I didn't have all the tools, and I made a lot of mistakes, Uh, So that's what led me to go back. The Lord called me to Kansas City and I sat in a prayer room for 17 years at the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. And I studied spiritual warfare and deliverance because what I saw was a lot of trauma that was happening in the way we were doing deliverance. And so I said, Lord, there's got to be a better way. I know there's a better way to do this than get into these power struggles you know, I was spending hours with people, just, you know, commanding the spirits to leave, but, you know, it would talk back to you. You know, that was praying for this one person who had a spirit of gluttony, and I was commanding the spirit of gluttony to leave. Say, come out in Jesus' name, no. Come out in Jesus' name, no. Come out, give me a cookie. I'm just kidding. <laughs> It works every time. I love seeing people's faces. (laughs) But, you know, after leading the deliverance ministry at at IHOP for close to 16 years, about 16 years, uh, we had zero violent manifestations. No one was attacked. Uh, We shut down anything that was weird. We didn't let people slither on the floor. We didn't let people talk back. uh, The spirits talk back to you. And so I learned a more biblical sound way in order to deal with these things without traumatizing the person and to bring more dignity to the person. I'm much more interested in seeing someone maintain their freedom now than just to have this fast food power encounter. And I'm greatly disturbed and concerned about today's modern deliverance ministry that's on the rise. Uh, there's a, some movies that have come out, and there's some friends of mine that are doing deliverance. And look, I understand it. I, I'm not talking bad about anything. Uh, I understand it because that was me. That was the, my view of deliverance at that time was Jesus said, come out, you know, shut up and come out. That's all there is. But there actually is more in the scriptures. Uh, there is more detail of how we can handle these things and it not be so dramatic. It doesn't have to be dramatic. And you don't have to be a specialist to do these things. Uh, The call to cast out demons is for all of us. Now, some of us may have an assignment to do it in a more full-time way, but that doesn't mean we all shouldn't know how to deal with demonic activity in our own lives and in the lives of others. And it's very real, isn't it? And most people believe that, oh, well, if the presence of God is there, if the Holy Spirit is there, then a demon can't be there. And I'm here to tell you, that's just not the truth. All right, Demons are in the atmosphere of the presence of God all the time. I've been in some of the most powerful meetings of glory, and I still saw people who wanted to keep their demons and were able to talk back to you even in the midst of really powerful presence and glory of God. And so there's a will there. Everyone has a will to choose. And even the gathering demoniac in Mark chapter 5, it says when he saw Jesus, he ran and fell at Jesus' feet. The man who had thousands of demons still had the ability to choose and to run and fall at Jesus' feet. So you're not going to be able to stand before God and say, the devil made me do it. It doesn't matter how big, how strong, how many demons there are. There can be moments of clarity where a person chooses to allow those spirits a place in their life. And so today we're going to talk about how the enemy operates, some of those influences, how to deal with it. We're going to maybe break up into groups and do a little workshop and walk through how to uh, minister to someone who's asking for deliverance. And so today I see this need for people, obviously with the spread of so many uh things online to tap into demonic activity and to view those things and experience those things our young people are getting demonized at a level like we've never seen and so that's why i appreciate what god's doing in the realm of deliverance he's bringing it back to the forefront we just have to get back to the bible and theological truth to make sure the parameters are safe so that people aren't just in it for a quick fix because i don't know about you but when i do get a breakthrough in my life or there's been warfare in my life, I'm going to have to fight that battle again. You may get it to go today, but it may try to return tomorrow. And so I'm much more interested in equipping people to be able to stay free. Not just get free, but stay free. And that requires a church that operates in discipleship. You know, That requires a community, a place where people can go and get what they need, get the truth they need, to heal their hearts so that the enemy can't come back and use the same influence they've had for so long. So today I'm going to mess with some of your theology. I'm going to really bend some of you in your minds concerning what you have perceived the demonic realm to be like and what is really taking place in the realm of the Spirit. Uh, We have misinterpreted, especially in the Southern Pentecostal charismatic community, we have misinterpreted a few passages of Scripture that has caused some of the chaos or some of the weirdness uh, that has developed through poor understanding of the Scriptures. You guys want to go to some of them? All right, let's have fun. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. Very popular passage. Most people are familiar with it and use it regularly. Chapter 10, verse 3, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. What would it look like to war according to the flesh? He's talking about warfare. He's talking about a battle. What does it look like when people go to battle in the flesh? It's a bloody mess. Okay, They use weapons. They use swords. They use armor. They used fiery arrows. You know, When you read fiery darts, they're actually talking about arrows that are, have a tip of fire. That's the way they wage war. They use shields. They used ramparts and they they would take fortresses and knock down the walls and besiege the city and then plunder the city. So Paul is starting off by saying that we wage warfare in a different way. That's not how we're waging warfare. We don't do this in the flesh the way you would wage war in the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So again, he's talking about fortresses, not in a literal way. He's using an analogy. He's using language that describes the way they would go to war and the things that they would face in battle during his time period, during his era. So when he says they're divinely powerful for destruction of fortresses, He's not talking about a literal fortress, and that's important because in the realm of spiritual warfare and intercession and the way people engage the spirit realm, they have created this imaginary realm where there are fortresses. Another translation is strongholds. Did you say strongholds? Some of you say strongholds? It's the same thing. See, back in their day, they would build up these fortresses, also called strongholds. And so he's saying that our weapons are divinely powerful that can overcome whatever the enemy builds. That's more of an accurate application of what he's trying to say. And this is when he gets more specific in verse 5. He says, we are destroying speculations. And everything raised up against the knowledge of God. See, a fortress would be raised up. A stronghold would be raised up. So the fortresses in verse 4, he describes as thoughts and speculations. And every lofty thing raised up against what? The knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ in the same way that whenever an army... Overcame a stronghold, they would go in and they would take plunder captive. So he's saying as apostles, we go into a region and we proclaim the truth of who God is by preaching the gospel under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and it confronts the wrong thought patterns in the minds of people that they have believed about God or their lack of knowing God. So you proclaim the truth of who he is, and he's saying we are taking thoughts captive in a similar way that if we overcame a fortress and took plunder. How many of you that use that verse for your own life? Like, I take every thought captive. That's actually not an accurate application of that verse. A more accurate application would be like Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. It says, I set my mind on things above. And so we don't necessarily take thoughts captive, although I understand what you're saying, but that's not what the verse is saying. He's saying we take the gospel, we proclaim it, and it confronts the wrong ways of thinking about God. Now, the error that has arisen is that people have taken this verse, and they believe that there's literal strongholds and fortresses over cities, and that we have to go and pull down the strongholds. Over the city. That we are the ones who go to the high places and we blow a shofar and we wave banners and we anoint the city and we pull down or kick out that territorial spirit. How many of you have heard that way of teaching and warfare? I I, I believed it. I did it myself. When I was in Paris, France, I literally anointed the entire city with oil. I talked a friend of mine into renting rollerblades and filling up squirt guns with olive oil. And we skated 20 miles through Paris, France, anointing everything. Uh, We went to the Arc de Triomphe, you know, and I went to the top, and I was like, come down, you foul antichrist spirits and Jezebel, guns blazing, just squirting everything. (laughs) You know, we skated down the Elysees, went to the Louvre, and, you know, I wanted to squirt the Mona Lisa with oil. And uh, thank God I didn't. And uh, we went to Napoleon's tomb. I was like, take that, Napoleon. And just crazy mentality of what warfare was about and how it operated. And there's still many places today, people today, that believe that that's what you have to do. And then I went to a conference where Mike Bickle and a man named Jack Deere was uh, doing a QA and a time with Cindy Jacobs and Lou Engle. And, you know, Cindy Jacobs and Lou Engel, they, they believe that you can go into those places, and that's kind of their view of, of warfare. And you had Mike Bickle and Jack Deere. Jack Deere is uh, a college professor. Uh, he ministers at Harvard. Harvard. He has, uh, I think he's got a Ph.D. in Greek. And he's just a very brilliant man. And they appealed to Cindy and Lou and said, it's just not in the Bible. It's nowhere in the Bible. Give us one passage of Scripture where it tells us to do this. Give us one Scripture that Jesus said, go and do these things. Give us one Scripture where Paul said, go and do these things. It's not there. It's nowhere in the Bible. Now, we'll look at a couple other passages that you may think support those types of methods, but let's look at some more. Let's go to Mark chapter 3. And a lot of times you'll hear people say a lot of anecdotal evidence to say, well, we did this, we prayed like this, and then this decision was overturned, or this happened. And if you identify this prevailing spirit over a region, you know, people say, oh, I, I just sense that there's witchcraft over this region. Or I really feel like there's a lot of perversion over this region or, you know, miscarriages and adultery and abortion. You know, I'm, I'm picking up that the stronghold over this city is murder and crime. And I always ask people, what city is there not those things? You know, what demon isn't out to produce those things? So it really doesn't matter. It doesn't change the way we operate one bit by knowing those things. It's just a lot of imaginary things that have spread that has caused a lot of mental illness. And that's what I see in our intercessory movement. There's a lot of mental illness. They're operating out of their imagination. And it's not helpful, and in fact, when you address those certain things, I didn't finish my story, but after I anointed the city of Paris, at the end of the day, there's a famous opera center, and uh, in the natural, a curtain unveiled. It fell in the natural, and it was Jesus on the cross. This is just after I anointed the entire city. And it was Jesus hanging on the cross, and the Spirit came on me and said, I have a remnant in this city, and the floods that I send in the natural confirm the flood of revival, that I'll send. So the Sin River is one day going to catastrophically overflow. And it happened, I think, in the 1700s. But it's going to happen again, but it's actually a confirmation that God's going to send a revival, an outpouring of the Spirit in France as well. I mean, when you think of... The voodoo capital of, of America, what do you think of? New Orleans. It's French quarter. It's French speaking. When you think of the voodoo capital of the world, what do you think of? Haiti. French speaking. French citizenship. So you can trace a lot of this stuff. The Statue of Liberty, the Freemasonry, it all goes back to France. And so there's going to be a revival. There's going to be an outpouring. But later that night, I got really sick, like 105-degree temperature, For three days I was vomiting, I couldn't hold anything down. If it wouldn't have been for 1,500 students at the Brownsville Revival covering me in intercession, I believe I would have lost my life for the way that I roguely went out and started confronting these demons over that region. And so that's why there's a danger to this. You have to warn people that if you engage these things in a... In an unhealthy way, you can have backlash and bring upon yourself unnecessary warfare. It's a very real thing that we need to be aware of. Now, let's go back to uh, spiritual warfare. We covered 2 Corinthians 10.3 about what strongholds are, and we'll do a lot of Q&A at the end of this. So if you at any time have a question to need more clarity, we'll go and do some Q&A and take questions. Uh, Mark chapter 3, this is talking about... The strong man, unless you first bind the strong man. A lot of times people use this verse as a reason to support binding a demon. Let's read verse 26 in Mark chapter 3, verse 26. Let's jump to 23. Chapter 3, verse 23. It says, And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. Parables. That's important. It's a parable. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. So it's an analogy of a strong man guarding a house. Jesus comes out of the wilderness and he's casting out demons with an authority and in a way that no one had seen before. Matter of fact, most people didn't see that type of authority since the time of David. David was known for being one who carried the authority to cast out demons. And this was some 400 years later. It's been a long time since they've seen anyone operate in this authority. And Jesus is just casting out demons left and right, so much so that the Pharisees say that he is the prince of demons. Like, that was their level of discernment, is that when they see someone operating at that level of power, or when power breaks in, look, when power starts to move, the so-called intellectuals will get offended and will belittle it because they think they can understand supernatural power. But the natural man cannot understand the things of the supernatural. If you want to have faith and walk in the realm of faith, you have to let go of your need to understand everything. You you think you have to arrive at a place of understanding before you'll put faith in it. That's called see it to believe it. That's arrogance and pride. That's not the spirit of truth. That's not humility, and that's not faith. Faith believes in it and then experiences it. It's a much more Hebraic way of learning. A Greek philosophical way of learning, which is what our society has fallen into, is that we bring an expert in, he lectures on it for a couple of hours, then we check it off our intellectual box and say, I heard it, now I have it in my mind, and I know it, but I may or may not ever experience it. But a Hebrew way of learning is, I believe it, I have faith, I experience it, then I know it to be true, and I may or may not ever understand it. And that messes with some of us, especially if you're very analytical and you're not a feeler, and you don't sense the presence very much, or you don't sense the demonic activity. I'm a hyper-feeler. I feel everything. There's not a time in my life I haven't prayed and felt the tangible presence of God. I also feel the demonic. That's why I'm sensitive to... And that's why I'm in deliverance ministry. Usually I can pray for someone in sense if there's something dark moving or going on. And so I understand the dilemma for some of you who have a different gift mix, and maybe you are a teacher, and maybe you are an intellectual. But I'm telling you, the realm of the supernatural is by faith. You access it by faith, you experience it by faith, and you walk in it by faith. It's a spiritual dimension. It's a spiritual reality, not a naturally-minded. Now, I love knowledge. I love the intellect. I love good teaching. I love sound doctrine. I love theology. I mean, if you'll hear me today, I am a student of the Word. I spent years studying this book. I love the Word of God. And so I want our experiences to line up with our theology. You know, I don't want experience. Experience should never dictate your theology, ever, Your experience should only confirm the theology that you already have. And so I enjoy power encounters. I love the the realm of the supernatural and the power of the spirit. And Jesus here is talking about how he would not be able to cast out demons in the way that he is unless he first took authority over the ruler of the house. When did that happen? He just came out of the wilderness. Now imagine this. Jesus is, he, he gets baptized. He comes up out of the water. He hears the audible voice of the Lord. The Spirit descends upon him like a dove. The voice says, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then it says, The Holy Spirit ekballos him or cast him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He gets thrown into the wilderness. And after 40 days, he became hungry. And that's when the enemy came and tried to tempt him. Now, have you ever thought about this? Satan literally picked Jesus up physically and took him to the pinnacle of the temple. Now, that ought to mess with some of your views of who Satan is. Why didn't Jesus just bind the devil? Why didn't Jesus just take authority over the devil? If that's the way we are supposed to operate now, why didn't Jesus do it? In fact, why didn't Paul just take authority over the devil? Because it says Paul longed to go into Thessalonica, but Satan resisted him. Why didn't Jesus tell Peter to take authority over the devil when he said, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat? Don't worry, I've prayed that your faith would not fail. After you have fallen, return and strengthen your brethren. Why didn't Jesus tell him to bind the devil? I mean, I could go on and on, but we need a a view of understanding spiritual warfare that Satan is the one who picked Jesus up. Now, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Did he put Jesus in a trance? We're talking about the Son of God, the fullness of power, just got anointed, came up out of the water. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and offered them to him and then took him to the pinnacle and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. The temptation had to be real or it wouldn't have been a temptation. So he had to have literally been at the top of the pinnacle. It wasn't just a vision or trance. I believe the kingdom of this world dimension was he opened up a realm and showed Jesus. But the pinnacle had to be a very real temptation. Therefore, Jesus had to get up there. How did he get up there? They were just in a wilderness. It says Satan led him. The the connotation is that he grabbed him by the hand and led Jesus. Satan did. I believe we have constructed this view of Satan that is inaccurate. It's not biblically true. We have came up with a lot of charismatic terminology. Satan's under my feet. He's under my feet. And no, most of the time he's dancing on your head. Actually, Satan is not omniscient. Everyone thinks that Satan can hear their thoughts all the time, right? Or that Satan knows what they're doing. And I love it when people say, Satan attacked me. No, Satan did not attack you. Every time Satan gets involved, something really bad happens. And so Satan is not omniscient, he's not omnipotent. Any information he gets, it would have to be through another demon that communicated it to him. It's not like he knows everything that's going on everywhere on the earth. Satan is in one location. But we all think we're getting attacked by Satan. No, you haven't been attacked by Satan. Am I messing with you yet? I told you I'm going to mess with you. And so Jesus is saying, I mean, even Jesus' family members are saying he's lost his mind. He's insane. He's just moving around in power, casting out demons. Go, go, bam, popping, moving, miracles, signs, wonders, raising the dead, casting out demons. They say he's crazy, and the scribes say, you're the prince of demons. Look, you get into deliverance ministry, you're going to have a lot of accusations. You think the religious spirit is against you now just because you speak in tongues and fall on the floor? You start really casting out demons and moving in power, you'll see a resistance come like you've never seen. They'll start calling you the devil himself. Just like they did Jesus. So Jesus uses this analogy. Look, I'm not able to do this unless I first took authority over the devil. How can I do this? I'm plundering the house of the enemy. Jesus bound the strong man who is Satan in this analogy. And he did so by overcoming the temptations to question his identity. He was given the word of the Lord, heard the voice of God, you are my son. Look, if you hear a word from God that says you're my daughter, you're my son, I love you, get ready. If it's true unction from heaven, you've been given that word to sustain you from the hell you're about to walk through. And so Jesus needed this affirmation to sustain him. He clung to it. I mean, look, all of Satan's, all of hell came against Jesus in that moment. Can you imagine? Look, I've been in the presence of some really high-level darkness. Pins, needles, headaches, nausea, trembling. Imagine Jesus under the weight of the highest-level demonic attack a human could ever experience. Hungry, hasn't eaten 40 days. Just You know, some people think Jesus just walked through the wilderness like, oh, get thee behind me, Satan. You know, like it's Jesus. He just floated through, you know. No, he was a man. It was tough. It was hard. He was clinging to what he had heard. So he passes test. And I love this. It's John chapter 14, verse 30. Jesus is sharing deep, intimate revelation with his disciples. I mean, he's about to go to the cross, and he's given them rich nuggets of their identity and his love for them. And in this moment, Jesus pulls back and says, I have many more things to tell you, but you can't bear them right now. The ruler of this world is coming, and he has no place in me. See, that's what binding the devil looks like, is that you don't have anything within you by which you are in agreement with him so that he can control and manipulate you. That's how you bind the devil. It's, it's, it's John fourteen thirty, The ruler of this world comes, but he has no place in me. I don't have any agreement with him or his ways. Therefore, he cannot manipulate, control me. This isn't a matter of saying, I bind you in Jesus' name, and thinking that angels come with a chain and wrap up the demon. That is, that is imaginary misinterpretation of the Scripture. You know, I always ask people, because I just recently had a deliverance person Say, I was in a deliverance one time and I commanded angels to come and to bind the devil and to gag the devil and I saw them come with the rope and they tied up the demon and that demon I saw was sitting there on its butt, on its bottom and didn't move. That's what they told me. I was like, then why don't you go do that with all of them? You know, if you can bind the devil, please go do it. You're doing a terrible job right now. Uh, How long does he stay there? Did other demons come along and eventually untie him? I mean, what kind of games are we playing here, you know? It's like, you know, and then the other thing was, as I was praying for someone, I started putting the spiritual armor on him. I put on the helmet, and I put on the breastplate, and I put on the shield, and I'm like, that's an analogy too. You know that, right? Ephesians 6.10, put on the full armor of Christ. It's not literal. If it is literal, why did you take it off, and when did you take it off? You put it on one time, it's there forever, right? I was quenching all the fiery darts of the enemy. You know, I got this shield. So you're carrying a shield in the spirit. Is that what you're telling me? No, it's all mental thoughts. I believe that I'm saved. I believe that I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I believe that I can walk in peace and truth. I'm going to stay in the word of God. That's my sword. It's all an analogy, it's not literal, but when we start taking metaphors of the Scripture and making them literal, that's what's caused all the craziness. They're taking metaphorical analogies and they're making them literal. The fortresses, the strong man, and the spiritual armor. And those three verses, those three passages have caused more damage in the intercessory world because of really bad interpretation and teaching. So we've got to line back up. We've got to forget, even if our practices were wrong, look, this was me. I was binding everything when I was in my 20s. I mean, I was just, I'll bind you, devil. i bind you, you foul spirit. I, and look, Jesus isn't expecting us to have 100% accurate terminology. So even when you say, I bind you, and maybe you feel something lift or something stop, the Spirit knows what you're intending to happen. So you still have authority. It's just a more accurate way of saying it is, I take authority over you. I like it better than I bind you, because remember, it has that idea that they're being wrapped up somehow. And so you have Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18. Whatsoever things you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, loosed on earth, loosed in heaven. Those scriptures have nothing to do with demons at all. I know there's been popular teachings, and I know this, I feel this, is hitting, this is going to mess with you. So in Matthew chapter 16, let's take that one first. Peter is talking with Jesus. Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? Peter gets divine revelation. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I shall build my church and the gates of hell, Hades, not hell. That's another bad translation. Should be Hades, which is the place of the dead, not the lake of fire. So when he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail, we all go around quoting this the gates of hell will not prevail. The gates of, you know, thinking that Satan is in the underworld right now. Satan's not in the underworld right now. Demons are in the underworld right now. The only thing down there is, it's Sheol, it's Hades, it's the place of the dead. And it used to be Abraham's bosom. And then the other compartment, Sheol. And then you have Tartarus. I don't want to get into that. but And so what happened is Jesus... Why am I going here, Lord? I don't know, but I'm going to do it anyway. Jesus, you never heard this at Easter. Jesus, after he died, went to Sheol, and he proclaimed to the spirits in bondage, he preached the truth, then he led captive a host of captives. So he took Abraham's bosom and translated it into paradise. And as he ascended, he gave, he gave gifts as men. As men, he distributed apostles, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and prophets for the building up of the equipping of the saints to the fullness of the stature, the maturity of Jesus Christ. Each one functions in a way that brings forth the fullness of who Jesus was. And so he gave those gifts to his church so that they could function and become like him. But he took Abraham's bosom and put it in paradise. Now it's called paradise. So the underworld is not the lake of fire. It's not what you would normally call hell. Now, are people in torment there that die without being regenerated in their spirit yes i believe there's a form of torment there but it is not the fullness of eternal torment like the lake of fire is going to be all right that was free i don't know where i went there so why did i go there now where am i so jesus where was i matthew 16 all right so the gates of hell will not prevail so he tells Peter this, and then he goes on to tell Peter that he's going to die. The Son of Man's going to to die, and Peter comes back and says, "I will not permit it. Let this not be so." And that's when Jesus turns to Peter and says, "Get thee behind me, Satan." Now, Satan in the Old Testament was it's not a personal name. It, it's it was Satan. It means the adversary. So there can be multiple Satans. It wasn't until the New Testament that Jesus and others began to refer to that one serpent-like creature as the Satan, the Satan. So Satan is not his personal name. Many believe he was just a seraph that fell, a serpent that fell in a rebellion. There's actually three rebellions. There was a rebellion in the garden in Genesis 3. Then there was a rebellion in Genesis chapter 6. And then there was a rebellion in Genesis chapter 11. So why the world is in the condition it's in is not just because of one rebellion of that one serpent. There's been multiple rebellions of the sons of God. And I don't have time to get into it, but a lot of the sons of God actually, they had land distributed to them. And that's what we now know as territorial spirits. And they're there until Jesus returns. And so the very idea that we're supposed to kick them out or pull them down or tell them to go somewhere else isn't biblical at all. They've been assigned there by God, according to Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, it says that he distributed the inheritance to the sons of Israel, which is a bad translation. The Dead Sea Scroll says the sons of Ben Elohim, which means the sons of God. So he distributed the different lands to the sons of God. Maybe we'll do a little Q&A on that later. And so there's many different satans or satans, but Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on human reasoning. And I say, I missed the part that I'm teaching on He said, and I say to you, your name is Peter whatsoever, and I will give you the keys... Of the kingdom, whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, loosed on earth, loosed in heaven. Jesus gives Peter, or the church, apostolic governmental authority in order to bring church discipline. It's discipline in the church. And you find the same thing quoted in Matthew chapter 18 about a person who is unwilling to forgive. And when you bring judgment upon a brother who is in sin and unwilling to forgive, he says... You've been given the keys of the kingdom. Whatsoever you bind on earth should be bound in heaven, loose on earth, loose in heaven. It's, it's judicial terminology. It's legal terminology. Like you have a binding agreement that I will support whatever judgments you make. That's what it means but there's been a popular teaching of saying well this also applies to the second heavens that we can bind those territorial spirits because it says whatsoever I bind on earth shall be bound in heaven it's not talking about bound in heaven the second heaven it's talking about bound in heaven the third heaven the throne room like you are you are getting favor and agreement from the third heaven realm not taking authority over second heaven realm and so, to say I bind you to spirits in the second heaven who can't even hear you, by the way, every time a spirit is addressed in the New Testament, in the Bible, it was in proximity of it being able to hear you. Remember, it's not omniscient. How many miles is it up there? I mean, to you, when you say that, it probably sounds like a little mite, some mice or a mouse. I mean, that's how big they are. And here we are shouting at him, and it's literally throwing hatchets at the moon. And so we've made this grandiose devil, you're under our feet, which Romans chapter, what is it, 15, 16, and 19 says, the God of peace shall soon crush Satan under your feet. That's, talking, that's an eschatological passage. That means he will do it when he returns. That's not a present reality. All right. You guys still with me? You okay? Repenting yet? And so these bind on earth bound in heaven passages, they don't apply. But even if you say I bind you, if you're under attack and you say I bind you, you're still taking authority over it. So it works. But there's no biblical passages to support that language. Is that clear? That's really all I'm saying. But I, I don't like it when they use those passages to, to say that something is literally being tied up. Or something is literally being cast out that's not really being cast out. That something is happening in the spirit realm that is not actually happening. That's called hype. And hype is a form of deception. And until the church realizes that hype is deception... It'll continue to function in entertainment. And we scratch people's tickling ears because they want to hear how much power they have over the devil, who is this little imp that everyone thinks they can play with. And so it's not a biblical truth. Jesus called the devil the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of darkness. That's not to put fear in us. If anything, that magnifies who Jesus is and what he accomplished. I'm not in any way trying to put fear in someone's heart over the devil. I just want you to have look, Sun Tzu said you must know your enemy before you go to battle. And so I'm trying to protect the people of God from entering into foolishness. And you may say, "Well, how then do we deal with stuff? You preach the gospel. You preach the truth of the knowledge of God. You convert souls. You build a church. You worship Jesus." You know, those powers, they're still going to do what they do. Look, the government of Satan is set up so so that he can deceive a person who yields their their heart to its agenda. So then they implement demonic agendas in the earth. It happens through humans because the enemy's a counterfeiter. So the the demons seduce the people The people believe the lies, the lies implement the deception. If you want to disrupt the kingdom of darkness, convert the soul. Convert the person. That's what you see in Paul. That's what what pulling down strongholds is, what Paul's talking about. We go and proclaim the truth, and it confronts the lies of what the enemy's sown concerning the knowledge of God. So how do spirits gain access or influence? Uh, it's, it's really important that we make this distinction and understanding, because the King James Bible used the word possession. Possession is a very, very bad translation of the word noisi or something like that. I can't speak Greek. But the Greek word actually means to have a demon. It doesn't mean Possession. Possession speaks of full ownership, doesn't it? But that's not what the Greek word means at all. That should have never been translated possession. Because people go around saying, well, I don't believe a a Christian can be possessed. Neither do I, because I don't believe a demon can possess anybody, even if they're a sinner. Because possession speaks of 100% ownership. And so I encourage you get that language out of your vocabulary in your Christianese to even use the word possession, because it was never used. It was a King James transliteration issue. It's a bad English word that they used for the Greek word. Now, a person can be demonized. A person can have a demon. And there's the age-old argument: Can a believer have a demon? Can someone who has been regenerated in their spirit, they've been born again by spirit. Can that person still be under the influence of a demonic spirit? Turn with me to 1st Corinthians chapter 10. And we'll go another 5 to 10 minutes and take a break. You guys okay? 1st Corinthians 10. In the second session, we'll get into more nuts and bolts, practically, of what to do with people who struggle with demonic influence. I apologize, we're going to try to squeeze a lot of information in a short amount of time. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, Paul's dealing with the people's... Issues of living in a pagan society and in the markets, there were those who were selling meat that was sacrificed to idols and to demons. In verse 20, Paul says, no, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. That word sharers is the Greek word koinonia. I would not want you to have koinonia with demons. Now I ask you, how in the world could a believer have intercourse with a demon? Because that's what koinonia means. Intimacy. At a level that it's actually used as having relations with. And so Jesus taught that when a spirit goes out of a man, it goes to dry and arid places seeking rest. What happened to that man or woman? Jesus said when the spirit goes out of a man, not off of a man or woman, but out of, it goes to dry and desert places seeking rest. When it finds none, it returns with seven more spirits. Now, it says that that person, I think it's Luke 11, 26 or 27, Luke eleven twenty six. 26. That's what I'm referring to. It says that they come back and they find the house swept clean and in order. So what happened? Did they get born again? Obviously, they had an encounter with God. They had an encounter with Jesus. The demon was driven out and then the house was in order and clean. And then it says the demon comes back with seven others more wicked than itself and goes back to dwell in that house. Not on that house. They're not sitting on the roof. They go back in. And so if that person experienced the power of God and had the room cleaned, maybe they got born again. So I do not believe an evil spirit can inhabit the spirit of a person who's been born again. Look, everyone is not children of God. You realize that. You know, you have to be born again to become a child of God. But people of the world, they are children of the devil. They are not his children. But once you become born again, you become a child. Your spirit's regenerated. Now, your body is a physical shell that houses your soul and spirit. And so, do I know and believe that that a spirit, which is wind or breath or ruach, that They don't have physical form. They can enter the body and cause sicknesses. When you think of Paul, the apostle had a thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan in his flesh. You know, when I pray for people to be healed, a lot of times there's a spiritual connection. Remember the woman uh, that was bent over whom Satan had afflicted for so many years when she touched them in his robe, or when they prayed for her, I forget, that she straightened up. And he says it was a spirit of infirmity, that the physical issue was directly related to a spiritual problem. And so the soul, your mind, your will, and emotions, it is in the process of sanctification. Your spirit has been saved, your soul is being saved, and your flesh, which is not being renewed right now, how many of you know that's for sure? We are dying. Our flesh is still dying. Our spirit is longing to be clothed with the power of heaven, our true tent, our true inheritance of our resurrected glorified body. But our current state is it's dying. And it was the influence of the devil, the power of the devil, that caused death to enter the world. Look, when Jesus was raised from the dead and he took the keys of death, hell, and the grave... The only power dimension that shifted was that Satan no longer had the power over death, eternal life. He could not keep people eternally dead. Jesus paid the price so that people could experience eternal life. But his ability to run around this world like a roaring lion seeking to whom he can devour, just like he did with Job and was called up into the council of heaven before God... And it's God takes the initiative and says, have you considered my servant Job? Look, the enemy and all his demons are used in the hand of God to, to bring forth holiness and purity to his church. A lot of times you're wanting me to cast something out of you that God is allowing because you prayed a prayer to be more like Jesus. I'm not going to do your warfare for you. You just need a better perspective of what warfare is about. To him who overcomes. It says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony. They maintained faith in the testimony of Jesus, and they loved not their lives even unto death. The way you look, overcoming for the church in many ways meant physical death. Did you hear me? Overcoming in this world can literally look like physical death. That's what it looked like for the disciples. Come on, somebody. Are you all following me? I'm going to preach a true true gospel to you, like what it truly means to follow Jesus. You pray the prayers, you lift your hands, Lord, make me more like Jesus. Okay, I want to ask you to reconsider that prayer today and what that looks like and what that means. All the disciples were martyred. The majority of the epistles were written to a church that was facing death, physical death and persecution. And today our churches fit so well into the powers of the air. Could it be because we're not walking the same level of truth and revelation they were? It's coming. Get ready. Let's turn to 1 Timothy 4. My point is, it would be really hard to eat food sacrificed to a demon knowingly and be sharers or have koinonia with demons and it not be able to affect you inside your body. 1 Timothy 4.1 But the Spirit explicit, explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. These people had faith, they were in the church, but they're going to fall away. Now, if the Holy Spirit is residing within them, because that's your number one argument that I hear from people. Well, the demon can't dwell in the same place as the Holy Spirit. Have you heard that? I can't have a demon because the demon can't live in the same space as the Holy Spirit. Demons are living in the space of the Holy Spirit all the time, right now. It's just a misnomer. It's not script, It doesn't say anywhere. There's not one verse in the Bible that says... the the dynamics of casting out demons changed. Jesus taught His disciples to cast out demons. Look, if it was just a matter of you getting born again, why do we have a deliverance ministry? All we would have to do is stand up and recite the Lord's Prayer and get born again and all the demons should run out. Did that happen to you? I don't know about you. I got saved, but I still got deliverance along my life later. I was born again, I was going to heaven, but I still needed some deliverance. I mean, I spent years in drug addiction and immorality. I needed deliverance. And that was after me being born again. If demons just jump out and run out of the church when you get born again, then let's just all get saved and we don't need a deliverance ministry. I mean, think about it. It it doesn't make sense rationally, and it's definitely not biblical. I mean, people use anecdotal evidence, but again, I don't know about you, but I've got to stick with the word. And unless there's a word saying once a person gets converted that a spirit can no longer enter, and it doesn't, then I'm going to go with what I've experienced for over 25 years when I'm praying with a pastor who has a pornography issue, and he's vomiting on the floor. Things are coming out of that man. And he loves Jesus, but he has a problem. He has strongholds in his life. And so we need to learn the difference between strongholds and warfare, and we'll talk more about that in the next session. Let's take about, say, ten minutes. So that's all right. I'm glad you hung in there. You ain't scared. Some of you are still smiling. That's even better. Keep this on if you don't mind, guys. Sorry to bring you back a little sooner, we're at 2.20, we're supposed to end at 3, and so there's still a lot. Oh, we got to 4. Well, never mind then. We got plenty of time. Why was I thinking 3? Good, now we got plenty of time. Sorry I cut you short on your coffee. So I know I stirred the pot. I know I probably said things that you're like, wait a minute, that's not the way I heard it in Bible school, or that's not the way I heard it in my church, and that's not the way I've been doing it for the past 20 years, and look, I understand. I grew up Southern Pentecostal. My dad, he was a, a Pentecostal preacher. My mother got saved in an A.A. A. A. Allen meeting, and so I remember going to the tent meetings and the sawdust and the holy rollers rolling on the floor and my dad was the guy that always jumped up in the middle of service and gave a message in tongues and I was the little kid coloring on the pew you know and my dad would jump up I thought he was crazy I just went back to coloring but you know I grew up with you know this lingo this language of binding the devil and get thee behind me Satan and You're under my feet. And, you know, all that language I grew up around and did it and used it and loved it. Uh, It wasn't until I started traveling the world and I started seeing some of the dysfunction in action. And I saw people getting sick. And I saw people living under oppression. And I saw intercessors just having an extremely wrong focus And I started seeing false prophecy that emerged out of it. And I started seeing this real weakness of theology and and biblical truth. And and I said, you know what, Lord, I want to write a book that helps people not go through the same mistakes I had to go through. And, uh, you know, I think that's why I wrote Power to Deliver. The book I wrote was mainly to try to help young people as they're coming up through the ranks to do things in a more healthy way. And so I know I said some things. We're going to do a little Q&A here in a moment. I wanted to wrap up just a couple of thoughts that I didn't button up clearly. The First Timothy 4, one passage simply is that if people were walking in faith and they, they had been born again, how then do you fall away and buy into doctrines of demons? That you listen to doctrines... Of demons and not get demonized. It just doesn't work that way. You know, what we've seen in the occult, what we've seen in false religions, is when someone has a faith in Jesus, but then they get deceived by another religion or occult, and they fall away from their faith in Christianity. We're seeing this happen all the time in what's called deconstructionism. People are deconstructing their faith Because they're paying heed to doctrines of demons. And Paul told Timothy, this is going to happen more and more. I personally believe there there will be an apostasy before the return of Jesus. And so I, I don't know how we can reconcile someone once having faith and walking in the truth and having the Holy Spirit and then being able to be deceived to the point where they embrace that level of demonization. And so again, just because you're born again doesn't necessarily mean that you cannot be demonized. And demonized means to have a demon. Now, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 27 says, Do not give place to the devil. It means to give a foothold. So whether the Spirit is in them, on them, or around them, to me doesn't matter. To me, this argument is, is really not the main thing. I don't care if the Spirit is in their body or if it's on their body. We just want it gone. You know, we cast it out, we cast it off, we break it off. You know, I don't believe you can send a spirit to certain locations. Some people say, I send you to the pit of hell, or I send you to the foot of the cross. And the foot of the cross is gone, and hell is sheol. Why are you sending them there? You know, that's again, some of that's just that lingo that people have bought into that's not biblically sound. And so there's three different levels of Uh, roughly four if you include temptation. And, And this is sort of what I've seen over the years. I wouldn't be dogmatic about these three things. But this is just a way that's helped me determine the level of demonic influence in a person's life. The first one would be temptation. You can be tempted, right? I mean, Jesus said that we should pray, do not lead us into temptation. So the enemy obviously has the ability to tempt us. But again, that doesn't mean he has control unless you buy into the temptation. So let's say you buy into the temptation and you... Believe the lie. So we all have these familiar spirits that lie to us. You're never going to prophesy. You're never going to have enough money. You're never going to have children. You're never going to get married. You're never going to go on that mission field. You're never going to start a church. You're never going to get healed. Your daughter's not going to get saved. Did I hit everybody in the room yet? We all have these lies that are constantly saying these things. And so when these lies are told into your Mind, you hear it and believe it, then you get angry or depressed about it. Your your emotions get affected by it. Someone looks in the mirror, starts thinking to themselves, "I'm ugly. Why is my hair that way? If you have hair, uh, I'm overweight or I'm too skinny, whatever." And then you get sad, and then in your will, your emotions then activate your will. To cope with the pain of the lie that you're believing. So then you go and you eat that bucket of ice cream, or you turn on Netflix, or you go to that pornography, or you go to that drug or that alcohol, and that's your coping mechanism to cope with the pain of the emotion that you feel because you're believing the lie. And the enemy can speak the same lie to you and produce the same emotion and the same behavior, and that's what defines a stronghold. That's when an enemy has a stronghold in your life. A spirit can speak the same lie and produce the same behavior. So a person who's under that type of control can be oppressed. We call it oppression. Acts chapter 10, verse 38, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, who God anointed with the Holy Spirit. He went about doing good and healing those oppressed by the devil. The word oppression is used. So we know that there is an oppression that comes. Then there's someone who, now, someone who's oppressed, they can still read their Bible, they can worship Jesus, uh, they can pray, but they just come under the warfare. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Like, we all experience times of warfare and attack. It's completely normal. And people come up to me all the time, Stephen, will you pray for me? You know, I, I'll say, what's going on? And they're like, oh, I'm just so oppressed, I'm just really feeling a lot of warfare there's a lot of witchcraft around my life and I said well when's the last time you worshiped oh it's been so hard it's been about a week when's the last time you prayed same thing I haven't been able to pray when have you read your Bible oh there's no way I've been able to read my Bible I'm just so oppressed I say well you haven't worshiped you haven't prayed and you haven't read your Bible in over a week you should be oppressed (laughs) you're lucky you're not more than oppressed and you're making me oppressed And so most of the time, we are not making basic Christian discipline choices to stay free. And I have a lot of people coming to me all the time, and they want me to lay hands on them and chase the devil out of their life, and then they are unwilling to change their behavior. So unless their environment or their lifestyle is willing to change, I'm not praying for you. And I've gotten really good at saying no to people. I did deliverance on a homosexual prostitute one time. Got completely free. Then he went home and got raped by his pimp. And then he committed suicide. And so that's when I started learning there's a proper place and a proper time. There's a wisdom to all this. You see, Jesus, all we have is these snapshots of Jesus saying, shut up and come out. We forget that he was in a very tight-knit community. People weren't flying from all over the world to go to a conference Jesus had. They all had really tight-knit families. like They had great-great-grandparents and cousins and aunts and uncles surrounding them, and everybody knew everybody. And so the, the potential for someone to maintain their freedom was much greater because the community was tighter. But let's say, uh, let's say a kid flies from New York to one of my conferences and they get completely delivered because their father's molesting them and then they fly back home and the dad does it again and the kid gets seven times worse. You see that there's a movement right now that says just come and we're gonna yell and we're just gonna cast out all the demons and you're gonna flop and writhe and shake on the floor and that's gonna be it and we as Western Christians we want that quick fix Deliverance is not a quick fix. I'm not saying you can't have a, a dr- dramatic power encounter that gets you jump-started, that you're going to have to put one foot in front of the other before this is over with. And unless there's a proper discipleship, what we are doing now is we are allowing our small groups to be the entrance way into how we do deliverance. And if the small group leaders in the house agree that that person's ready and willing... Then they get recommended for the deliverance ministry. And then we have the small group on the back end to help people after they go through the ministry to help walk them through it. And so it's not just a matter of having a session with Stephen Beauchamp and you're all going to be better. You know, it's just, it's not work. It doesn't work that way at all. It's not the way it's set up. And so... Most of the time it's a matter of people just praying, reading their Bible, and kicking the devil out of their home. You know, put on a worship CD and kick the devil out of your home. If you can't do it, one can put a thousand to flight, two, ten thousand. Call a friend over, then start a prayer meeting and kick the devil out of your house. You know, if you're having trouble in your marriage, tell the church, guys, come over, bring the intercessory team over to the house, bring the worship team, and start worshiping in the home. And drive the oppression out of your home. And repent and forgive one another. See, we're not humble enough to tell people what we're really going through. Therefore, we live in hell when we've been given all things we need pertaining to life and godliness. You're just not willing to activate it and use it. Alright? Be vulnerable. Be honest. Hey, I'm going through it with my wife and my kids right now. Hey, will y'all come over and let's join in prayer and let's put some worship on and let's just pray for an open heaven to be in my home. Because I've let the devil in in some way. You know, I I think we'd see a lot more freedom if we operated that way. Now, then there's those who are tormented. People who they can't read their Bible, they can't pray, and they can't worship without severe interference. Oftentimes, this person has been traumatized. They have experienced deep abuse. Um, There's many different things I could go into that could cause a person to be tormented. But again, they, are, they usually will or can manifest a spirit when they're in a service. And mentally, they're just incapable of engaging with the Lord enough to get the freedom they need. That's when the deliverance ministry is important. Because then we can help walk a person through. It's really about a truth encounter, not just a power encounter. You're replacing lies with truth. The truth sets the captive free. The truth heals. It's just a matter of identifying what lies are you believing, and when did that lie enter? When did the abuse happen? When did the trauma happen, and what lie did you believe when it happened? And you deal with fears, and you deal with anger, and you deal with rejection, you deal with lust and perversion, it goes on and on. And so I'm going to, well, then there's one more, the third level would be someone who's dominated That is the unsaved person. The tormented person can still be born again. The third level is the demoniac. It's the homeless person. It's the mental ill person. Uh, We don't see them as often in our communities because they're usually in mental institutions or penitentiaries. But it's the ones who have basically lost their minds. They've They've given their agreement over to the enemy in such a way that the enemy can control their life whenever he wants. Those are the ones that you oftentimes would see a spirit speaking through them. All right. And that doesn't mean they're possessed. That means they have agreed. They have submitted their, they have yielded their will to that spirit's ability to do it through them whenever it wants. It's the same thing that happens in the realm of the Holy Spirit. If you want to experience supernatural gifts, you have to yield your will and your control over to the Holy Spirit to function in those things. So the same thing happens with a demonic. A person is yielding their their will to that demon to be able to do it. We'll talk about how to shut some of those manifestations down in a service in just a moment. But I think I've thrown enough curveballs at you where you've got some wheels spinning. I can see some wheels spinning. Don't be afraid. There's no bad answer. If you want to get up and say, no, I don't believe a Christian can have a demon, then go for it. That's fine. No worries here. I'll bless you. Thank you. So we have an extra. Well, you can take this microphone. And I'll grab this one. Yes. All right, so if you have a question, you just raise your hand, and I'll hold the mic for you.
0: There's a lot of mental illness uh, in our world today. Uh, Do you have an idea or a percentage, I know it's probably hard to say, percentage of the people are just uh, demonized or, uh... so anyway, you have an opinion on that? A lot of mental illness, do you think most of it's spiritual?
1: I believe every physical ailment in our bodies or in our lives has a spiritual root, and so while I'm not going to say, because I, I mean I, I preach all over the world, and they'll, they'll bring people in many different conditions, autism, uh, mental illnesses on various levels, and they'll ask me, and you, you'll have a mother there with their child who is drooling all over themselves and say, is this a demon? It's really hard to answer. But I say, look, this, this is what I know, is that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, And this is not the way it's supposed to be in heaven. And so on some level, whether it be because of the fall, as a result of the fall of man, this sickness, this illness and disease came into the world because of the devil. So therefore, we're going to address the devil. Whether I know there's a demon there or not, I don't know. I'm not saying that. But I know scripturally that I can cover that base confidently knowing that it could potentially be a demon causing this issue. And so that's kind of my back door into it that keeps me from coming out and rightly saying this is a demon. But most of the time, mental illness such as schizophrenia or dissociative identity disorder, these things happen because someone experiences trauma. And this, the circumstance was so painful, the mind does something very beautiful. It actually divides. And it helps the person cope with the pain and the reality of what happened. And so it's a grace mechanism to help a person to keep from losing, going insane or committing suicide. So they create alter thought patterns in order to avoid facing the pain of the reality that took place. So it takes a strong gift of word of knowledge. I I did a lot of deliverance on people that uh, were formerly in satanic ritual abuse. And a lot of times there's a lot of disassociation there. But we all function on disassociation on some level. A lot of us disassociate when we feel pain. But when the pain is so deep, It divides and creates multiple coping mechanisms. So you just have to get that person to be completely honest about what really happened at that time. If you can build the trust, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can build a rapport with someone that you can get to that actual place in time that that happened, and they can forgive, that's when you'll see fruit from it. And so is the devil in the mix and all that? Absolutely. Are spirits in the mix with all that? Absolutely. Um, but I'm not going to say everything's a demon. Look, you can't, you can't go butt naked out in the winter snow and then rebuke the devil the next day when you have a cold. You know what I'm saying? You're going to get a cold, man. That's not the devil. That's your stupidity. So not everything is a demon, But I always cover the demonic because the enemy will always try to get in there. So that's kind of the way I approach it unless I get a word of knowledge or discerning of spirits and I know the demons there and I can address it directly. But even when I address demons, I try to get their cooperation. We're going to do this together. Otherwise, it'll become this revolving door of codependency. And you're going to want to keep coming back to me. And I'm just not playing that game anymore. And so we do our best to disciple and tell people how to fight their fight on their own. And everyone has their fights. Everyone has to battle and overcome. Look, someone told me one time you're going to have to fight your daddy's demon. It's because they know your DNA. They know your weaknesses. These things are smart. They've known every trick of the trade from the beginning of creation. And so they know your weaknesses and I don't want to scare anybody but there's literally traps and snares set up for you throughout your life at different stages of life. (laughs) And so the Lord uses these things as a purification mechanism as well. And so understanding how this works and obedience mixed with the knowledge of your identity is really what we try to emphasize most. But yeah... Spirits are always involved, from what I've seen, in those cases.
0: That was very difficult in your life, and you recognized it, and you're delivered from that, and you continue to walk in a spiral away from that particular, whatever, I'm thinking of the mental illness, you know, when those people do not recognize that. But when you do and you're delivered from that, is it possible then for anybody to be walking around that doesn't have something in their life that they need deliverance from?
1: Yeah, I don't know about you, but I always need deliverance from something. I mean, like the process of sanctification is what we're on. You know We're only operating at like 0.6% brain capacity. I mean, Adam and Eve were at 100% brain capacity in the fullness of glory. And Satan still deceived them. So our opportunity to be deceived is off the charts, pretty much. And so that's why Jesus said, I'll give you another helper, the spirit of truth. And he'll lead you and guide you in truth so that whenever you do find your weaknesses and your stumbling blocks, that through the blood, the spirit, the word, and his name, we can overcome. And uh, yeah, we're all going to have trials. We're all going to have testings of our faith. And remember, you pretty much asked for them. And being in a fallen world that's been taken over by the prince of the power of the air, we're going to experience warfare. And Maybe we fall, but a righteous man gets back up seven times. You need to discern the difference between an attack and a stronghold. You may fall in an attack every three to six weeks or three to six months. That's just you failed a test. Get back up and keep running. You know, you don't need to run to the next conference or the next deliverance ministry. And the enemy will tell you that. Oh, you're worthless and just put shame on you and guilt and keep you in that low place and get you to quit and feel disqualified and worthless. And, you know, that's when you've got to do basic Christian discipline. Put your face back in front of the face of Jesus and gaze on his beauty. It's a beauty contest. And he wins but you got to get in that place and gaze. So yeah, we all have our battles for sure. Next question. We'll cut, we'll get on this side too. You know, I'll pray for rejection later. Well,
0: um, can we go back to your story in Paris, France? Okay. So, I'll just kind of tell you my thought and i'm just asking you to elaborate on it yeah so i've heard of a friend that actually did the same thing near us she almost died because she took on a city and like in my mindset i feel like i know that's not my jurisdiction so i know i'm not going to do that but my family is my jurisdiction my church family is my jurisdiction and so i i feel like i have a freedom to declare certain things over my family and over my church family Mm um that haven't come to pass yet? Does that make sense? Yeah, what a so asking? L-
1: let me be clear now I would go to a city because I went to Chiang Mai, Thailand. I traveled the world trying to find people who could raise the dead. I have a handkerchief that probably 200 men and women have prayed over that have literally raised the dead. It is so powerful, this little thing. Jason, you know what I'm talking about, my yellow hanky. And uh... You know, Benny Hinn, David Hogan, Carlos Anacondia, Claudio Freidzone, Heidi Baker, John Kilpatrick, Steve Hill, I mean, they've all laid hands on this thing. And uh, and so I, I sought the world for power. I wanted to get the anointing. And then I went to some of the most demonic places in the world, because David Hogan was a big mentor of mine, and it was like, come out, devil, or I'm coming in after you. We go to any region, anywhere, without fear, and attack those demons. And so... What I've learned is after Paris, I went to Chiang Mai, Thailand, and I went all the way up to the high place, and there were monks literally levitating up there when I got there. And I didn't address anything. I was just like, Father, in the name of Jesus, push back darkness and revival, have mercy. My intercession was to the Father, not against demons. And so it's when you address things and you come out and you just take this rogue posture. If I take authority over you, you foul spirit, then you're just asking for trouble. You're just poking things in the eye. Now, if something comes into your domain, which is what you're talking about, your house or your family, that's when that spirit's picking the fight with you. And that's when I say, get out of my house in Jesus' name. Get off my children in Jesus' name. Get out of my body. You know, that's things attacking me. You know, that's not me going out trying to pick a fight. And so that's the way I navigate those things. But even with that, I lean more toward Jesus. Holy Spirit, come. And those things just fall off, you know. Like I still emphasize the name and the power of Jesus over than me necessarily saying I've got authority. Luke chapter 10 verse 17 is very clear. When they came back from casting out demons, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. But... Do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. And look, that's what I see in this modern deliverance movement, is people rejoicing that the demons are subject to them. And it was a rebuke Jesus gave the disciples. Don't do this. Just rejoice that your name's written in heaven. Stay humble. Don't try to make a name for yourself that you're casting out demons. I mean, that is just, you're asking for trouble as is. And the power of suggestion is so dangerous. They're calling out marine spirits and Leviathan and Jezebel and it's all bad interpretation of the Bible. Why aren't you calling out Herod's daughter? Why aren't you calling out Delilah? Why aren't you calling out the whore of Babylon? I mean, there's, you know, you could exhaust the Bible with all the different names of people. Somehow we've highlighted Jezebel to make it the worst, and it just doesn't even apply. So unless you're ready to kill all the prophets in the land, then you probably don't have a Jezebel spirit. You're probably just a strong-willed woman with leadership and need need to mature emotionally a bit or something. You know? Like, you're not a Jezebel. Man. Um,
0: uh, several years ago, I watched a peaceful um, deliverance in a meeting where there'd been a lot of worship and all, and the woman was just very gentle, but my bottom line question is, she brought um, a woman and her husband, which was the stepfather of this young man, brought this young man somewhere between 25 and 30 age. And when she began to pray for him, I was about five or six feet away, and his eyes turned orange, light, light up, orange-red. And um, I, I've never seen anything like that before or since. But my question is, I think they wanted him delivered I did not know that he wanted to be delivered. Is that something that happens a lot?
1: Yeah, we'll cover this in a minute. Remind me to go back to it, and we'll go line upon line through Mark chapter 5 and and deal with someone who didn't want to be delivered. Um, sounds like the spirit of orange light demon, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Um, But yeah, that sounds pretty wild. But yeah, there's aggressive people with zeal. I understand it happens all the time. Look, at Nations Church, you guys follow Nations Church at all? Daniel Kalinda, the ministry I'm a part of. Uh, We've got a church now called Nations Church. And man, the power of God is falling like every week. And so we have a lot of visitors that come over from all over the world. And there's always some type of manifestation. And someone's growling or screaming or shouting or demons talking every week. Like We're just having to put these fires out every week. And people's first inclination is to run over and to start yelling at the demon to come out. And so I was talking about the power of suggestion earlier. At IHOP, when I was there for 17 years, uh, we would ask people if they would like prayer for healing. If you need prayer for healing, stand up and raise your hand. And so people would stand up, raise their hand, people would gather around them and start praying. And there was always this zealous intercessor that would come over and start saying, I bind the devil, I take authority over witchcraft and the occult and freemasonry to the third and fourth generations. And, you know, they're just going off. You know, I pull out every fiery dart of the enemy and I break off this. They're doing all the karate stuff. And, you know, maybe this person is Catholic and they're just visiting for the weekend. It's like I just thought I had allergy symptoms. I didn't know I had witchcraft and Freemasonry, and you know the power of suggestion is so damaging. Like people are, can be very insecure, and if you struggle with rejection, the minute you suggest that someone even has a demon can be so psychologically damaging. And so that's why we got to be careful before we start calling out all these random spirits in corporate deliverance sessions. And even on YouTube, people are posting deliverances on YouTube, thinking that they're doing a good to the church. It's not. It's making everybody think they need deliverance. You know, they're watching these things. Some, some people are getting demonized as they're watching it. It's not healthy. It's not good. It's not upholding the dignity of a person. Right? There's a, there's a verse. It's... Oh, i got to think of it. Um, Mark chapter, this is Mark chapter 9. Come on, Holy Ghost, help me. Mark chapter 9, verse 20, 25. I want you to see this. This verse jumped out at me one day and I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is what I've been looking for. Mark chapter 9, verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit. That's all you need to know. Why does it say that? When Jesus saw that the crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit. He didn't want to make it a show. He wasn't interested in doing things in front of a bunch of people to get famous he mark nine twenty five. and so that tells me that a lot of what we're seeing today is just a lot of dramatic show that's drawing attention more to the devil than it is exalting jesus and so be careful because man is it seductive you're seeing this dramatic manifestation the person screams and then they're laying there in peace And you think, oh, that was a mighty deliverance. We've got to start seeing deliverance through the lens of discipleship, not a quick fix. Because most of those people, and I've been doing corporate deliverance sessions for years, most of those people, unless they are properly equipped, go back to what they were living in the enemy's going to try to come back and sometimes we can do more damage than good. Okay, we'll take a couple more. Son of God or son of man? Kind of like Genesis 6, sons of God, you sons mean? Sons of God.
0: So like what's your interpretation of that.
1: Yeah, they're supernatural angels. Those okay. are angels according to Jude, Jude and Peter. There's no doubt in my mind that the offspring of that unholy union created Nephilim, which then produced an offspring. And then there, when they died, when the Nephilim, these giants, died, they had hybrid spirits, which now is what we deal with, unclean spirits. And so it's spirits looking for bodies, because the Nephilim body died. And the demons that procreated with women are now in Tartarus, according to Jude and Peter. And so they're in chains of darkness until judgment time. And so that was a, a rebellion of the sons of God, the sons of Elohim. And then you had the Tower of Babel. Well, then there was the flood, right? And God said, I'm wiping out these Nephilim because these hybrid... I was not going to get into this. <laughs> but that's why God said... I, I was, He was sad that He even created man. Because these... Alright, there was a council in heaven. When God said, let us make man in our image, there was a heavenly council. It wasn't just within the Trinity. There is a, there's still a council in heaven. And so whenever he wiped out the earth with the flood, uh, then somehow the Anakim survived. There was still giants after the flood. And then Nimrod came along and they built the Tower of Babel. And that's when God said, I'm divorcing humanity. I'm dispersing humanity to different sections of the earth. And the sons of God in the council, he distributed authority over those territories. Those, those territorial spirits corrupted man and started embracing their worship and idolatry. So Psalm 82 and Psalm 89 is God's judgment against those sons of God that corrupted mankind in those territories. And that's what we now call principalities today. And they're awaiting the judgment of Jesus' return. And then they'll be judged. Oh, it's everywhere. Psalm 89, Psalm 82, Job 33, Genesis 6, Genesis uh, Yeah, very clear that there's a council of his godly ones. You can go straight to Psalm 89 if you want. It's right there in the beginning. Psalm 89 is the judgment, the proclamation of the judgment against those fallen sons of God. It says you will die like men. I know that's deep. That's free. No, I'm just kidding. Stephen, are you going to get into some of the practical practical things of you know how to shut certain things down? Yes, we're about okay. to jump in now. If no, there's no, just, not more. Yeah, because I know that was a question somebody has. Yeah. Everybody, good. Another question? No questions on warfare and binding demons and Satan and. Yes, we.
0: Okay. Um, so the word pharmacia. Um, has a few different definitions, uh, one being uh, the use, it's the Greek word, pharmakia, you know what I'm talking about, the use or the administering of drugs, poisoning, sorcery, magical arts, often found in connection with idolatry and fostered by it. And so in, and I don't even know what book to refer to, it feels like it was in, Acts, or it could have been one of the churches uh, where the woman was um, controlled by pharmacia witchcraft, but she was also making money. You know, so we have pharmacia, like unbelievable pharmacia, in the United States of America, and in the church.
1: So. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> how so do we deal with the that? The Greek word does mean sorcery. And so, so how do we deal with that was her question. So there is a dimension of people using medication for the purpose of demonic worship. And so really, in my opinion, it's, it's the motive in all these things. I'm not anti-medicine by no means. I don't think Paul was anti-medicine. He told Timothy to take a little wine for your stomach. And so, you know, why didn't Paul operate in divine healing with Timothy in that moment? So I'm not anti-medicine. And the reason we take medication, I think medications are extremely helpful and was the wisdom of God to help people create them. And so uh, it's what people use those medications for. So they were dealing with black magic type voodoo things and were using medications to tap into the spirit realm. And so that's, I even did it when I did LSD and ecstasy and all this stuff. I would use drugs to open, bypass my mind and get into the spirit realm. And so if drugs are used in that way to access the spirit realm, that's sorcery. And so just taking Advil isn't going to, you don't have to repent of sorcery, right? Or pharmakeia. But are drugstores under the influence of a power that wants people overly medicated to keep them numb and disconnected spiritually? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we need to be aware of that. So, again, just like anything else, does this control you? What is your motives? Are you in agreement with the agenda behind it? Or are you warring against it saying, no, I don't agree with that, but I'm a child of God. I'm free. You know, I'm the one who dictates atmospheres. Not uh, vice versa. So we need to be aware of it and make sure our motives are clean and pure as we interact with it, right? And so there's many things in the world that, if we're if we're not careful, we interact with it, we can come under agreement with it, and then that opens the door to the demonic, right? So it's Paul said, if someone offers you a steak and you're hungry and they don't tell you that they sacrificed it to Molech, you can eat it. But if somebody says, we sacrificed this to Molech, then as a witness, say no. But if they don't tell you, even if you know it was sacrificed to Molech, eat that sucker if you're hungry, right? I'm a child of God. The only reason it would defile me is if I came under agreement with why you did what you did with it, you see? So the same thing applies to yoga. Martial arts, medication, it's all where your agreement and your heart is. But if they say, do this as a witness in support of what we're doing, then you don't do it. But I can stretch any dang way I want, and I'm not getting a demon. I got the doggy pose or whatever, and I'm free. That's just kind of the way I live my life, otherwise you'd be in fear all the time. All right, so let's jump back in to some teaching. We're going to just go real practical back into what do we do? What do we do when somebody manifests? How do we shut it down? How do we help somebody who's going through these things? And so, what I've created is a very simple tool for those who are oppressed. Now, this is just for people who are oppressed, they can still read their Bible, they can still worship. They can still pray, although it may be tough, maybe it's their flesh. And by the way, Paul the Apostle put way more emphasis on dealing with your flesh than he talks about dealing with a demon. I mean, he says, this is the work of the flesh, and he goes into sorcery and immoralities and sensuality. And, you know, he he makes people understand that it's your flesh that gives way to the devil. If you crucify your flesh, if you discipline your life, and those are the things that will shut the door to the enemy. I mean, what does open the door to the enemy when we view some sinful things and we agree with it? It's when we listen to sinful things and we agree with it. If you listen to secular, sinful, influential music and you agree with it, then you can come under whatever spirit is operating in that music. You just can Uh, If you practice sin in any way, if you act out sin in any way, then you can open the door to an unclean spirit. If you experience trauma, if you're in a near-death experience, if you've been abused or molested physically, spiritually, emotionally, if you are abused those moments the enemy can seize an opportunity to sow a lie into your heart and gain access so we got to be careful to walk in forgiveness and make sure that our heart is free and in those moments we don't let fear continue to govern our lives i was doing door-to-door evangelism one time and the sun was setting And all of a sudden I heard someone screaming at the top of their lungs and I looked over and it was a young lady and she was wearing a black cape and I started getting closer to her and she kept screaming louder and louder. And I said, hey, what's wrong? Stop yelling. She said, don't touch me. I'm a witch. And I was like, "Okay. Uh, why are you screaming? She was like, because I was cursing you, but my curses weren't sticking to your aura. And so I explained to her that that was the Holy Spirit, and I ended up leading her to Jesus, praying with her right there on the street corner. She got completely set free, born again. And then I asked her later, what were you cursing me with? You know, I was just curious. She said, fear. Because that's what we do when we see people with auras or spirits like yours. First of all, I was mad that she could see auras, right? I was like, man, these people are drinking blood so they can see spirits. But, uh, you know, it, it was just... Eye-opening because the enemy wants us to live in fear not know what we really have and not know what we really carry in God. And so fear is a big one. And identifying fear in your life and not letting fear... Most of us deal with certain levels of fear. I mean, most people, it could be labeled caution. It's okay to be cautious. But it's not okay to be controlled or, or paralyzed by something. That's when it becomes a deliverance issue. And so uh, identifying how things come in, uh, uh, the occult, false doctrine, false teachings. If you start sitting under a false religion, if you start practicing the occult, if you get involved with Jehovah's Witness or Mormonism or Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, All forms of the occult, black magic, voodoo, necromancing, white witching, water witching, all these things can open you up to demonic spirits. Psychic, fortune telling. If you go to a fortune teller, you open up your spirit to someone. Anytime you open up your spirit to receive from someone, then you can potentially be affected spiritually by what they have. And that applies in the church as well. And so understanding how demons operate, how they come in, it's usually on the basis of agreement. Now, someone may be deceived and not know that they're actually in agreement with something. That's why we preach the gospel. We preach the truth so that people can come into alignment with the truth. And so as you're praying with someone who's oppressed, maybe they've come under a time of warfare and attack and they're losing their battle. This is 90% of the people I minister to fall into this category. Most of the people you're going to minister to fall into this category. They respond to altar calls each week, and they need prayer. So the first thing you're going to do is communicate. Number one, communicate, really simple. This is not rocket science, by the way. (laughs) This is uh, pretty basic stuff. So you ask them, why did you come forward? And they say, maybe I've been dealing with anxiety. I've really been fighting anxiety. Or I've just been really angry. I've been getting in fights with my kids. You know, I've really been struggling with lust and viewing things sexually. You know, I've been struggling with this addiction. You know, maybe I've been practicing certain things in the occult, playing with a Ouija board, whatever. And so when you're communicating with them, you are checking off key words if they say i'm struggling with fear then what are you going to address if they say i've been struggling with anger anger and so on and so forth now don't try to if i mean if you get a word of knowledge if you feel like something's there more than what they're telling you then you present it to them in a way that they have the ability to agree or disagree with what you say i feel like there might be some rejection there that might have come in, I'm not sure, you tell me, maybe it happened with your father, your mother. That's if you're feeling something from the Holy Spirit. But again, don't just suggest something. Don't say it in this way. I just see you getting rejected by your mother. Okay, see the difference? The first way was, I'm offering this to you, is it true? The second way is, I see this and it is true. And the way that can affect a person psychologically is very important. Because you can actually, again, open the door for them to have something they didn't even have. Through presumption, through suggestion. So I'm not saying not to be prophetic. I'm not saying not to use word of knowledge. Just present it in a healthy way. So once you find out what it is, if it's like all these things set up a deliverance session with somebody, right? I mean, it's like, you jacked up. You need more than what I can do in this little altar ministry time. You know, like, we're going to set something up for you. This is not the place or time. And if at any time you start praying with somebody and a demon starts talking through them, shut it down. This is not the time or place for this. Because their thought processes have so much more issues than you're going to be able to deal with at an altar ministry time. I mean, literally, if a demon starts talking through somebody or they start slithering on the floor or they start growling, you're dealing with psychological problems as well. Their agreement is so meshed into their identity that it's more than just getting the demon out. I mean, they have a very core identity issue that needs to be dealt with and a knowledge of God issue. And after we do these steps, we'll go through Mark chapter 5. So once you've highlighted a few things by which they have told you, then you cancel it. It's it's a matter of getting them to repent of the sin where sin has been involved. And sometimes you need to tell them what sin is. You know, it, you got to stop watching horror movies. You know, if they they come to you and say, "I want prayer for fear," and you say, "Well, do you watch horror movies?" Yeah, I watched Poltergeist last week. It's like, are you going to stop watching horror movies? Because I'm not praying for you if you're just going to go watch another horror movie. You know, you shouldn't wonder why you have fear if you watch horror movies. You shouldn't wonder if you struggle with lust if you're listening to a bunch of lustful music. Which includes Justin Bieber. That's an inside joke. Um, And so there's all types of things the enemy will use to try to creep in. And in that moment, you may have to explain to them what sin is. Some people don't even know. Young people these days, they don't even know what sin is. And so you get them to repent of the sin, make sure what they understand what repentance is. I have no desire to do it again, ever. I'm changing my mind. Then you get them to renounce agreement. I renounce my agreement with a spirit of fear or a spirit of anger, or a spirit of lust. Again, these are not names of demons. They're just this spirit is producing this behavior, so I'm calling it a spirit of something. We don't need to get the names of demons. One of the most damaging doctrines that hit the church was that you've got to get the name of a demon to cast it out. It is horrible. And I've never, in, in all my years of ministry and deliverance, I've never needed to speak or get information from a demon at all. If I get these people to properly repent... Fully renounce and then deal with forgiveness because Matthew eighteen eighteen says, If you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will the Father forgive you, but you'll be delivered over to the tormentors. And so if people who are tormented, it very well may be because they haven't forgiven. I would say probably the number one key to deliverance is forgiveness. And the number one attack of the enemy is offense. And John Bevere wrote a great book, it's still so powerful today, it's called The Bait of Satan. And offense is so prevalent, and offense is going to be, at the end of the age, what causes an apostasy. People are going to get offended at God, because he doesn't do what they expected him to do, or he doesn't come in the way they thought he was going to come. And so the potential for offense is in the church all the time, isn't it? And therefore, the need to forgive and be humble is in the church all the time. A person who is offended will hear things that aren't true and see things that aren't true because the deception is just clouding their heart and the enemy will lie to them and make them think something about someone. The, the accuser of the brethren comes in and before you know it, there's suspicion about a brother or sister. They refuse to go to that person and talk about it, but then they start spreading the strife to other people. And before you know it, half the church is believing something about Susie that isn't even true, that's because one person got offended at Susie gossip and slander. So after they have repented and renounced, but they broke agreement, then they have forgiven themselves, they've forgiven whoever wronged them or hurt them, have them forgive them by name. Then you go into a time of cleansing. And this is that moment where you say the Lord loves you. He forgives you. It's a time to prophesy, uh, speak destiny over them, uh, give them the bridal paradigm. You are dark but lovely. He is absolutely ravished by your heart's movement toward him and that he is near to you right now. I mean, you just start speaking into their spirit after they've repented, because if they have done that before the Lord sincerely, he is ecstatic. He is absolutely amazed at their agreement with the truth. And so you can just speak into that, and oftentimes you'll see them getting healed. You know, the emotions will start healing. So that's kind of like your inner healing moment within the deliverance time. And then you tell them, now we're going to tell this thing to go. And you hold their hand and say, you're going to do this with me, because you want to teach them in that moment that they can do this. It's not a matter of them needing to come to you every time. They can do this at home. And so you can lead the prayer, but you look for their cooperation. If at any time you feel like you do not have their cooperation, shut it down and go back to step one. Because if they're not in agreement with you or they're not cooperating, then it's a waste of time. Their cooperation and their willpower has to be engaged for a successful breakthrough or deliverance. You know, if if at any time you're counseling someone and you just don't feel like they're willing to do the homework, stop it. Just shut it down and say, I don't think you're ready for this. Come back whenever you are. And they may say, no, no, I am, I am, but they really aren't. Are you going to get rid of that relationship? Delete the number right now. Delete the Instagram. Delete the Facebook. Block them right now. You know? And if they don't do it, there's the door. I mean, that's how you got to deal with it. Otherwise, you have all this codependency. People that are unwilling to do the work. Not willing to live holy. So then you command it. So anything that you've highlighted, okay, we're going to command fear to go, we're going to command lust to go, we're going to command heaviness and depression to go, we're going to command rejection to go, whatever it is that you've highlighted in your time of communication. Now remember, if, if during the communication you've got a list of 20 different things, maybe set up another time, because you don't want to bog down your altar ministry time, you know, spending the next four hours, you know, dealing with something that obviously there's there's a lot more going on. And then after you've commanded it to go, you know, say specifically, we command you in the name of Jesus, you foul, unclean spirit, leave right now. Now, this isn't you doing it in a rogue way. You have their agreement. And if you have their agreement, then you guys two together can command it to leave. Don't ever try to cast a demon out of someone who's not with you. Otherwise, you're going to get the power struggle. You tell it to go, and then if there is something there that's really hanging on, that's when it'll talk back to you. Say, no, we're not going anywhere. They don't want us to leave. And I'm going to show you in a minute that Jesus told a demon to leave and it didn't leave in the scripture. So if it's there and they're not in agreement with you, you'll get into a power struggle. The minute you get a power struggle and something starts talking back to you, "Uh uh-uh, we don't play those games. I'm done. You can go back to communication and say, wait a minute, you're not fully in agreement. Otherwise, this thing goes. Like, if you get their agreement, it's easy. It goes. They go easily. The only time you see power struggles is when the person wants it to stay. Then after it's gone and you feel like there's been a release, you can counsel them properly, shut the open doors, get rid of the music, get rid of the movies, get rid of the relationship, change whatever codependencies you have, help them... Make the right changes necessary to maintain their freedom. Get them in a small group. Have something as a church, something you can hand them directly that plugs them in. Because they're going to have to fight this battle the following week. And so we don't want to be that fast food car wash that people go to and you become dependent. So you have to look at the soul like a garden. Uh, Jesus taught the parable of the sower and the seed. I've been sowing seed into the garden of your soul. And that seed is landing on your heart. And Jesus said, after the seed is sown, Satan immediately tries to steal the seed. So the minute you leave here, there's going to be plans and strategies of the enemy to try to steal the seed that you just heard to keep you from applying it in your life. And what's happened is we all think we have what we listen to. But you really only have what you walk in. And so you can hear a thousand messages over this last year period of time, and you still haven't changed. You're still living the same way you were a year ago, even though you've listened to hundreds of messages. That's the deception that you think you have what you've heard. It's the deception of James 1.22. It says you've become hearers of the word rather than doers, deceiving your own selves. Then maybe you start applying some of it and you start getting a root system. But then the cares of this life start coming against you because you start walking in truth. And then the seed dies because you're unwilling to bear the stigma of the truth that you're walking in in a fallen world. Then if you really start walking, you get roots and then you start to bear fruit. Then it says, what is it? Jesus says the persecutions will come. The enemy ups the ante and says, okay, now we're going to put you in jail or kill you. Because you're walking in that level of authenticity and the knowledge of truth to where the enemy can't have you in the earth anymore. And Some people look at me like I'm crazy. I'm sorry, we're just in a comfortable Christianity, and it's not the Christianity the disciples walked in. Jesus said, this world's going to hate you. In the same way they treated me, they're going to treat you. And to the extent that you're authentic, you'll see those powers of the air gnash their teeth against you. And so it's coming. The Lord's going to purify his church. But there's seed being sown. Now, the the opposite is true. The enemy's sowing seed. And if you water that seed, like we talked about earlier, you're ugly. You're never going to prophesy. You're never going to have children. You're a failure. And you meditate on that, then you're watering that seed, and it's developing a root system. And then it's growing a tree, and it's growing the fruit Of lust and anger and fear and rejection and perversion and depression. Because you're watering the seed, the lie of the enemy. It's really simple agriculture. Deliverance is simple agriculture. It's not rocket science. So we got to trace it back to the lie. What seed was sown in the garden of your soul that you're meditating on that has formed a root system and you're bearing all the bad fruit? If you see someone and you see that they have fear and insecurities or they're struggling with heaviness and depression or anxiety then let's trace this back to the root system what lie are you believing that is causing you to have these experiences or these thoughts in life and then you just replace the lie with the truth if you want to uproot the roots of lies read your Bible if you struggle with fear find all the scriptures that tell you to be strong and courageous. If you struggle with lust, find all the scriptures that talk about purity. And use the word of God like a sword to cut out all the bad seed that you've sown and watered in your life. Make sense? It's really simple. So you're basically doing the same with other people. You're basically helping them find out what they've meditated on, in order to highlight the lies. Now, in deliverance ministry, you'll have some that are really strong in inner healing. It's all about the emotion. It's all about the father heart. It's all about the bridal paradigm and knowing the love of the father and intimacy with Jesus, which is very important and necessary in deliverance ministry. You cannot separate inner healing from deliverance. But then you have the people who it's all a demon. The devil's got to go. You know, I see the devil. It's got to go. It's a spirit of fear. You have those people. Then you've got the counselors who just want to listen to people and let the person process it, and then they counsel them how to change their lifestyle. Then maybe you have the 12-step people or, you know, the, the people who replace lies with truth. It's all about the word. You just got to get the lie out and put the word in. And when I was at IHOP, I was over all those different ministries, and the difficulty was getting all of them to celebrate one another and not say our way was the better way. The inner, inner healing person was like, we've got to, we've got to heal the emotion and the deliverance. guys' like, it's all a demon, you know. And the other one said, we've got to have the word, the truth. That's how they get healed and free. It's all true. We all, we all need each other. And so, navigating those waters in a deliverance ministry can be pretty hectic. But we've got to be humble and celebrate the gifts in other people. What comes first, the chicken or the egg? Like, does this person need to be healed, and then we cast the demon out? Or does the demon need to go out, and then they get healed? Every circumstance is different. It's all situational. Every time I built a box around any of this stuff, the Lord just blew up the box. I did create a manual. Uh, it's about 100 pages, and uh, it deals with soul ties. It de- Now, this was just for the oppressed person. When we start ministering to someone who's tormented, that's when we get into deep trauma and sexual abuse and satanic ritual abuse. That's when we have to go in and we get them saved, make sure they're born again, lordship prayer, James 4, 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. We've got to get people submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That, to me, is how you're going to maintain freedom. That he is Lord. Your life is no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. A lot of times our our demon issues are our uncrucified flesh issues. You, you jump off the cross and then you get in trouble. You stay on the cross, you'll be all right. Never saw a, a dead man that was afraid. And so we... We lead them into lordship prayers and the salvation and the knowledge of Jesus in that way. And then then we go into soul ties, a person, place, or thing, something that they've uh, used that is attached to them that keeps them in some type of bondage as a result of the union that took place. And this can either be sexual union or it can be an emotional union. It can be a father. It can be a mother. It can be an article of affection. It can be a location. It can be a church or an old home. Anything that pulls you back into a regressed memory that makes you feel regret or disappointment or shame or guilt, maybe it's an old uh, class ring from an old boyfriend. Maybe it's a picture of a boyfriend or girlfriend that you keep in your closet. You still have it, and you go back to those little, that little box of sentiments that you have, and you pull it out, and you see that, and all of a sudden you get regret. Oh, what would have happened if I would just stayed with them? Or you drive by that old house, oh I wish I would have stayed there, and it brings you into depression and you just feel terrible. Those are soul ties. Your soul is attached to something that the enemy's using to bring you back into negative thoughts and negative emotions. Obviously it happens with sexual misconduct because the two become one flesh. So you literally need to name that person and say, I forget the union, I release responsibility, and any tearing or fracture that took place from our union and separation, I ask for healing in Jesus' name. And so you need to do that with every person that you've ever had any sexual interaction with that was not your covenantal spouse. After soul ties, we deal with the occult, we break the power of witchcraft for those to whom it applies, then Freemasonry, we break. We have like a 100-page Freemasonry prayer that we take people through, if it applies, which means if I see the fruit of suicide, miscarriages, depression, some of these things follow the curses that were spoken through Freemasonry. If we see that happening in a person's life, then we take them through the whole prayer. But just because your great-grandfather has a ring and maybe was a shriner and you can't literally point to any negative stuff in your life, we're not taking you through that prayer. It's just a matter of saying, in Jesus' name, I renounce that stuff. Keep walking. You know, If you don't feel like you really need to do something, you don't need to do something. You know, There's no sense in digging up trash. You know, I mean, I'm not into navel-gazing until we find all the dark stuff possible. I mean, if you look long enough, you'll see darkness on people. It's more mature to see the good on people. You know, most people, they say they have the discerning of spirits, but how many of you know that person and all they see is demons all the time and all they see is negative? Discerning of spirits is discerning light and darkness. You should be seeing light just as much as darkness. After Freemasonry, we take them through uh, what it's a model I learned at Brownsville. It's a 16 stronghold model. And I'll do my best to write them out here, but I might need help if someone else has the manual or remembers the manual. So, in your Bible, there are certain spirits that are mentioned. Can anybody give me an example? Spirit of fear. Right? Was that Second Timothy one seven? Spirit of fear, right? What's another one? Deaf and dumb spirit. Remember, Jesus said, "You foul deaf and dumb spirit." Infirmity. Good. What's that? Say it again? Spirit of, does it say spirit of? There's one called harlotry or whoredom. Spirit of divination. Heaviness. Lying spirit. You got my manual? You cheater! I, I'm up here, I'm up here saying, man, she's good. She, she knows her Bible, and she's reading off my manual. Can I borrow this for a Oh, you both have it. Where did y'all get these? You ordered it. They're not in print anymore right now. Oh, okay. So I'm looking for a new publisher, but they're not in print, so these are a rare commodity. i got like thousands of people wanting this right now, so you're blessed to have it. I haven't even seen one in, in years. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, let's keep going. And You can keep reading if we don't get any more. Someone else. <laughs> No, no lust, but there is perversion. I butchered butchered that one. Uh, Death. Haughtiness, heaviness, infirmity, lying, perversion. Um... Stupor,
0: uh,
1: seducing, where are we at, One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Yeah, go ahead and give them to me. What am I missing? There's one more. H I J K A B C D Definition de- death, death. Bondage. bondage. Okay, so the, these are all the words in the Bible, the English words in the Bible, where it says "spirit of something." You can find it, and in my manual, I give the definition and the scripture reference. Now, if you were to look these up in the Greek and Hebrew, you would have a different word, and you may have 12 different applications of that word. And so this is not exhaustive by no means. But what this does is it helps us stay within some type of biblical parameter as we address spirits. Otherwise, you have people coming up with Jezebel and Python and Leviathan and all this crazy stuff. And so we stay within what the Bible says is a spirit of something. Now, sometimes it can be talking about a human spirit, a spirit of fear. Sometimes it's a human spirit of fear. It's not necessarily a demon of fear. And these are not the names of a demon. But if you think of any issue, like throw something at me right now, like what is an issue in someone's life? Depression, heaviness, um, anger, we could put under jealousy. A lot of times jealousy is the reason there's anger. Murder is jealousy. Rejection is fear. And rejection and other things can be uh, under other type of spirits. And we cover it there too. So when we take a person through deliverance, we go through all 16 different things, and I have a list of like 20 to 25 different manifestations underneath each one. It's not exhaustive, but it's really helpful to identify. And and the issue isn't about needing to be specific to set a person free, because I don't believe that. But when you use specifics, there's something powerful when someone renounce and repents of something specific. You know, it's it's more than just a general, I repent and renounce everything, and then going for it. There's something very powerful about, I repent and renounce specifically the spirit of depression or heaviness. Make sense? Okay. And all that's in my manual. I'm sorry. I, I usually refer people to it. It's just not... Uh, ready right now to be sold but any questions why don't we jump to mark chapter 5 and i'll show you really interesting that we do this for the tormented person but if you want to use this as a tool with the oppressed people as well it works it helps You know, Pigs in a Parlor came out, right, years ago. And while it was good at exposing the need for deliverance, it was bad at calling everything a demon. It was the demon of gray chairs. It was the spirit of concrete or the spirit of wood walls. I mean, everything was a spirit. And it just got so out of hand that everyone was afraid of all the spirits that are hiding everywhere. It wasn't helpful in that way. But it did bring deliverance to the forefront for a while. Okay, you guys know the story. Did you know there were two gathering demoniacs? There wasn't just one? Mark tells the story of one, but Matthew says there were two. We'll read the story of the one. All right, let's do, let's do this interactively. All right, we'll start in verse 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. It says, They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him any more, even with a chain. Because he had been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, everyone say, he. Is he talking about the man or a demon? The man. And bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he, is that the man or the demon? Huh? The man or the demon? Why would it be different than the first time I asked you? The man. Uh Uh-oh. What business do we have with each other, son of the Most High God? Now, that's what makes you think it was the demon. But this man's identity was wrapped up in him being the demoniac. He exercised a great fear over the entire region. This was who he was. He was the demoniac. That was his identity. All right. It says, shouting with a loud voice, he, the man said, what business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God, I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him who had been saying to who for Jesus had been saying to the man come out of the man you unclean spirit it says had been saying jesus was commanding the spirit to leave and it wasn't leaving y'all follow me any objections at this point point? and he jesus was asking him Now look, in verse 8 it said, For he had been saying to him, Is that the man or the demon? For he had been saying to him, Masculine, the man, come out of the man. And he was asking him, the man, What is your name? Now, many deliverance teachers over the years have said that Jesus was talking to the demon and I had to get the name of the demon to cast it out. Over the years in deliverance ministry, what I've found is that there's an overlap between someone who has the demon and the demon itself. They're intertwined. Have you ever been talking to somebody and you didn't know if it was a spirit or if it was the person? It's both, there's a cooperation there. So the man could easily say, We are many. The man could easily say, are you here to torment us? Because their identity was so wrapped up in the demonization. I believe Jesus, as he was commanding the spirit to leave, went to the root of the issue and asked the man his name. And, and he wanted to get to the man's identity. Because this man had been living in the tombs. And he was getting to the root issue of who he really was. That he wasn't this demoniac. And when the demons, and this it goes on to say, now he spoke up and he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. That's the man speaking. That's not the demon speaking. All right? you got to see it because it says, And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, now every time he's been used, it's been the man, right? Why would Jesus be referring or Mark be referring to a demon as a him and a he? Masculine. And he was asking him, what is your name? In verse 10, and he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. He didn't want him to send the demons out of the country. Because he was functioning at a level of authority over the region. Remember, when the demon leaves, or when the demons leave, the people get so scared they tell Jesus to leave the region. His identity was wrapped up in exercising control over an entire region. That's why he says, Don't torment me, don't let them leave the country. Now, there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. Now, verse 12, what does it say? The demons implored him. Then it brings up the demons. It tells you when the demons start speaking. And they don't start speaking to verse 12. Did you guys catch this? Are you following me? There's been a lot of mess over the years in deliverance ministry with people having to get the name of the demon. I've been in so many deliverance sessions where people say, what is your name? What is your name? Tell me your name, because they believe Jesus had to get the name of a de- this demon in order to have the authority to cast it out. That's nonsense. That makes no sense to me. What does make sense to me is that Jesus is having compassion and getting to the root of the issue with the man. And the what what would be the only reason Jesus could not command a spirit to leave? Only if the man wanted him to stay. Right? Right? So it only makes sense to me that he's saying, what is your name to the man, not the demon? So avoid any ministries that say you've got to get the name of the demon because that's what's caused all this specificity and specialists where only the man who has high-level discernment is able to get the names of the demon in order to cast them out. And that's what's crept into our deliverance ministries and culture. And it's, it's been very unhealthy. Cody? No, I would say the man is telling Jesus, "Our name is legion, for we are many." Like he is on their team. This is my team. He's part of the team. Yes, they they've become one. In his mind, that's who he is. See what I mean? That's why he says. That's why they weren't leaving and why he didn't want to be tormented by them leaving because they had tormented him so long. So anyway, yeah, that's just a little fun thing I like to work, work through because it's, it's everywhere. And if you get into deliverance ministry, you'll find it. But it's also how demons operate in people who are demonized at a really high level that you will wonder, is this the demon or is this the person? And the answer is yes, it's both. They are cooperating. And so, in those situations, you want to get the, the cooperation. And maybe when Jesus what is your name? He was basically defining that you're a man, you're not a demoniac. And once the demons knew that he was aligning with the truth that Jesus was about to say, that's when the demons spoke up and said, cast us into the pigs. Don't cast us out of the country. I'm not dogmatic about it. Well, maybe a little bit, but, you know, again, these are just nuances in deliverance ministry. Um, any questions on what to do? All right, so let's say we're at an altar ministry time, and you pray for somebody, and all of a sudden they fall down, and they're just rolling on the floor screaming. What do you do? This, this, it bothers a lot of people, because the first thing I do is I go over to the person And I asked someone that was with them, if they were with someone, and say, what is their name? And if I can get their name, then I'll get on the floor and I'll whisper in their ear, let's say their name is Jack. Jack. Sorry, Jack. (laughs) I'm not trying to highlight you or anything, but if you want, come lay on the floor and we'll do a full (laughs) (laughs) reenactment. You ready for a nap? Have I put you all to sleep? So you go over and I'll say, Jack, take take control of your body. Stop it. And if the demon speaks back and says, no, I'm not going to do this, I'm like, shut up. I'm not talking to you. Jack, take control of your body right now. You can hear me and stand up with me. I'm going to grab your hand and I'm going to pick you up and we're going to walk out of this meeting right now. 99.9% of the time, I've got Jack up walking with me. No more screaming, no more writhing. It's because they're cooperating with this thing. So you have to give them the permission to tell them, this, you don't have to do this. And every time the demon speaks back, and I tell people to stop praying because the anointing is what's causing the spirit to manifest. And so everybody's praying, Shonda Mahi, and speaking in tongues, praying over that person, casting it out, and I'll literally tell everybody to walk away, get away, stop praying, and I'll deal with Jack. Now, if, if Jack has such an issue that he, he falls to the ground and a demon is moving through him in that way, I'm not going to do a deliverance on Jack in that scenario. I'm not doing deliverance on Jack. Jack needs discipleship. Jack needs some truth spoken into his life. Jack needs more than just a demon getting cast out of his life. You see what I mean? And so at a normal church service ministry time, that is not the best place to deal with that type of scenario. So don't freak out. You simply get their name. You tell them to stop it. You tell them to take control of their body and stand up and stop it. And you may have to reaffirm to them that this doesn't have control of you. You're letting this happen. I want to talk to Jack. I want to talk to whoever person this is. And I'm going to take you to a back room and we're going to have a discussion. And no distraction, because everybody in the church is watching at this point, right? And it's a big distraction and you don't want it in your church service. And what's happened is because we're so unfamiliar with supernatural activity, when something supernatural happens, everybody freaks out and gets afraid. That's how unfamiliar we are with stuff, and yet we're supposed to be a supernatural church. We're supposed to see this stuff everywhere, every week. It shouldn't be strange. But because it's rare and strange, then when it does happen, people freak out, and their first knee-jerk reaction is, I remember Jesus saying, come out, shut up and come out. And that's what they do. They start yelling, shut up and come out. Now, I'm having to train some of the largest evangelistic ministries on the planet, such as Christ for All Nations, who are leading 50,000 people to the Lord every week right now. And I'm going to Africa and training these African pastors to stop doing this kind of stuff. Because if you've seen the videos, it's usually whenever someone's manifesting, they are dragging that person. Kicking and screaming to a tent. And I have worked in those tents. And those tents are some of the craziest things you'll ever see in your life. I mean, you got people's eyes rolling, turning colors, levitating, demons speaking, people projectile vomiting. It is the wildest stuff you'll ever see. These people grow up around deep black magic and witchcraft. They are demonized to the hilt. And so when the power of God starts moving, this stuff just starts happening. And so I'm trying to develop some type of system where we can uphold the dignity of these people, because right now the only paradigm is still yelling at them until the demon leaves. And I'll tell you this one story. There was a woman that was a prostitute in France, and I was a young man and doing deliverance on her and... As we're commanding the spirit to leave, she starts clawing her eyeballs out. Literally she's trying to claw her eyes out because of what she's seen sexually. She felt so defiled, and she said, it's in my eyes. You know, she, could, she felt the spirits were in her eyes. And so we commanded just with all the authority we had for the spirits to leave, and she's rolling around. A funny story is while I'm doing this deliverance, My wife, who wasn't my wife at the time, walks in that room because she was on a short-term trip visiting, and that was like her first glimpse of seeing me doing deliverance. And she walks in, and there's blood everywhere, and there's this girl rolling around on the floor, and it's like, I hope she knew what she was getting into when she said yes to me. But we finally, after like three hours, the Spirit left, peace came on the girl, She walked back into the service and everyone saw her like her blood was still streaming. The claws were still on her eyes and everyone saw her. And ever since I did that, I said, Lord, there's got to be a better way. And for years I would pray. I hope that young lady's doing okay. I hope that she survived. I hope she kept going and, and made it. And So 15 years later, I get invited to speak at a conference in Paris, France. And I'm having some email communication with the administrator for the ministry. When I get to my hotel, I ask uh, someone if I could speak with the administrator that I had been talking to over email. And I'm sitting in the lobby of a hotel room, and in walks that girl. Fifteen years later, and I've been praying for this girl, not knowing where she was. She was the administrator that I was talking to. Via email, and I didn't even know it. She leads worship at one of the most on-fire ministries in Paris, France. The minute we saw each other, we just hugged and started weeping. We, She didn't know it was me, and I didn't know it was her. Come to find out, she did great. She's on fire and even tells her testimony of when she got delivered that day. And so even though we make mistakes and, you know, we don't do it correctly all the time, there's still grace, and the Lord still helps us in our weakness and uses us. But, you know, I tell that story where even though you maybe you've made mistakes in the past, maybe you've done it wrong. Maybe you've been that person yelling at the demon. It's okay. The Lord knows we're all just kids trying to learn this. Right. And so thank you for your time. There's 10 minutes left and there's any more Q&A or if there's any other questions we can we can go into that. You want to. don't be afraid there's no bad questions so
0: at the end of that story in mark chapter five jesus cast the the demons into the swine and they run off the cliff into the sea do you see a throwback to genesis chapter six and what god had to do to cleanse the world I see a parallel, but I don't know if I'm seeing something that isn't really there.
1: Yeah, I mean, you may have some revelation there. I haven't thought it through that much uh, in terms of that correlation. But sure, I think the Holy Spirit could, you know, bring some insight into that. Uh, Initially, I see it as just a mockery as well. You know, just a, a slap in the face that they killed the pigs anyway. They wanted to be in a body. But they went and killed the pigs anyway. It just shows the insidiousness, you know. Sort of like you—you may—I don't even know why Jesus negotiated with them. Why did Jesus even negotiate? It's really interesting. But yeah, there may be something to that. Another question. It says demons. Yeah, it literally shifts. And, <clears throat> well, the reason being, people are so unfamiliar with working people who were demonized is that the minute the man says, Are you here to torment us? You know, like they automatically assume that that's got to be the demon speaking. They don't make the correlation that that man is in cooperation with them. And it's him saying it. Not even Jesus was making them go. Exactly. And that limits a lot of the power struggles you might have. You know, I spent hours, like with the prostitute, trying to get it to go. But over 15 years of doing deliverance ministry on thousands at the International House of Prayer, zero power struggles. We just didn't do deliverance on people who weren't ready. And the people who were ready, the spirits just go. It was never a power struggle of authority or anything. One over here first. Yeah, okay.
0: Is there a scripture, or two that talks about demons going to waterless places? Is there any correlation between water or lack of water?
1: No. What it is is back in their culture, they perceived the wilderness and the desert as the place where Azazel lived, Satan the evil. So everything in the wilderness, scorpions, serpents… That they all believe that that's where the demonic realm lived. That's why they sent the scapegoat out to the desert. That's everything out there outside the camp is bad. And so Jesus, when he's teaching it, he's saying when a spirit leaves, it goes to that place because that's where we that's where they live. But when it goes there and doesn't find rest there, it tries to come back. That's all Jesus was saying. So when Jesus says, when I give you power and authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means injure you, he's not, he's not calling demons, serpents and scorpions. Back then they had to wear sandals. And if you didn't wear sandals then a serpent or a scorpion would bite you. And so he's just saying, don't be afraid of wherever I send you, I'm going to take care of you. You're not going to get hurt. Now, that was a specific assignment to the apostles at that time. Now remember, Jesus said nothing will by any means injure you, and a few chapters later they all get martyred. And so you have to look at these statements, one being in context directly spoken to disciples. You can't take all the scriptures where Jesus was speaking directly to his 12 apostles and apply it to you in terms of your assignment. Not everyone are sent ones. Not everyone is apostles. And so you really have to navigate your interpretation in that way. It's got the church in a lot of trouble because we take the standard of the apostles and try to put it on everybody. And that's just not what the Bible teaches. Think of the thousands of people they got saved on the day of Pentecost, but they don't—they weren't ever sent ones. They went home and they, lit, they lived godly lives and raised their children. And the knowledge of the Lord and love their families. They were obedient to their assignment and therefore their reward is just. You know, a lot of people live under shame because they haven't packed up everything and went to China as a missionary because they think that that's what everyone was supposed to do because Jesus said, go into all the nations and make disciples. He was speaking to his apostles. All right, now we're all called to make disciples but making disciples is a broad spectrum. Right? That could be raising your children right, or witnessing to your co-worker, or getting plugged in your church. Not everyone's called to be an apostle of the Lamb and do the same things. And the same thing occurs when he imparts something to them. They get an impartation in Luke chapter 10, the 70 that's sent out. They received an impartation. Then in John chapter 20, verse 22, Jesus breathes on them. That's an impartation. But then they get Pentecost. So there's multiple impartations that dissipate. They don't keep what Jesus gave them. They needed more encounters. Until the fullness came, the promise came in Acts chapter 2. Does that make sense? It's very important, especially as Pentecostals, because we just think we've been given everything all the time to do anything. And it, it's not, it doesn't quite work that way. We all have specific assignments, don't we? It's different. Question. So I have two questions. The first one is um, you talked about like the different spirits. How do you know when someone's completely free? That's the first question. And the second question is, is what do you do when someone wants freedom, but they're afraid to get freedom due to demonic entities like displaying, like say that someone wants freedom, but um, they've had maybe like demonic uh, spirits for a long time. And when they try to get free, um, those things kind of like attack that person and then they're afraid. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Okay. It happens all the time. It's a great question. I mean, the spirits will intimidate people from getting free. because, And they'll make the people think that things are going to get worse if they do it, which is all just a trap. It's just a lie. So, yeah, there's an intimidation factor. To answer your first question, I don't know if someone is always completely free. I think that's between them and the Lord. Uh, there's things that people get free at at different stages of their life. So I tell this funny story. When I was in Bible college, I went to Cleansing Stream. I went through deliverance ministry. I never missed a service. I got prayer as much as possible. I thought I was God's man of power for the hour, I was squeaky clean, had nothing left, you know. I was clean as a cucumber. And then I got married. And stuff started coming out of me. That I didn't know was there, and so I think we're all on this journey, and you know, freedom may be subjective, right? And so I think I think we're all getting free. You know, everything's found in the Lord's prayer. Even after Jesus experienced his warfare with the enemy, he comes out of that, and the disciples say, "Lord, teach us to pray," and his his response isn't, "Go and take authority over the devil." Go and cast this spirit out of your home. Go and bind this principality. He didn't say any of that. And that was right after he experienced the greatest amount of warfare ever. He said, pray in this way. Abba, get a revelation of the Father. Right? His holiness. Get a revelation. Hallowed be thy name. He's holy. So all of this is the knowledge of God. And then he starts praying, forgive me my sins. Repentance. Then he says, forgive me as I forgive others. You know, then he starts dealing with forgiveness. You got forgiveness, you got repentance, renouncing and forgiving all right there in the Lord's prayer. I mean, he gave us everything we need in spiritual warfare just in the Lord's prayer. I mean, it's really beautiful. And so it's not a matter of taking the fight to dis. I want you to really get this. The fight isn't to disembodied spirits, spirits without bodies. The fight isn't against them. Jesus never told us to address those things. When Paul said, we war not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, he's saying that because they were getting persecuted by people in flesh. And he said, what I want you to understand is even though they're trying to kill you, you're warring against something that's controlling them. So your tendency is to believe that you're warring just against flesh, but you're not. You're battling something bigger that's controlling them. He's not saying for you to go out and to pick a fight with disembodied spirits. He was simply saying, know what's controlling the people that have bodies. And so I think if you can understand the battle is between six inches between your ears, that's where the battle is. And that's all that we see in the New Testament of of the apostles doing is battling there, renewing the mind, dealing with the flesh. Well, first you get them to repent of the fear. So breaking agreement with the fear that the intimidation is bringing. And so they've got to be ready and willing to say, I break my agreement with this fear and intimidation, and that's where you can start. If they're ready and willing to do that, go for it. But if they're still afraid, you just got to be careful. We'll do one more.
0: Okay, so back when you had the fear, anger, lust, addiction, occult on the board and you were saying like somebody comes up to the altar and they're dealing with like all of them. That's not the place. Like what do you do in that moment if they are dealing with all of them?
1: Well, hopefully there would be some type of deliverance ministry in the church or a small group where someone is helping people that are on that level of bondage. And so if they say all of these things... You need to pray and find out whether or not you're the one who's going to help this person. Because it's going to take time. It takes a commitment. Mm -hmm. You know, I work with ministries that deal with uh, sex-trafficked victims and deep trauma. A lot of times, this takes you committing to someone for a long period of time. They need fathers. They need mothers. And so all I'm saying is, you know, you can still pray, I still believe God for supernatural divine power, and I'll, I'll pray for you, but in order to see someone that's that bound up get free, I think the church has been set up on purpose to function in all the gifts to help people. And so, small groups, community, fathering, mothering, those are the type of things that will help people stay free. And uh, just getting away from that fast food, wham, bam mentality, conference blast that I just have not seen a lot of fruit from, lasting fruit. I'm all for power encounters. I love the power of God coming down and setting people free. But at the same time, I'm not going to try to tell someone that this is going to be the end all be all for what they do. But again, it's circumstantial. The Holy Spirit could lead you to commit to that person. And you can start right there for the time that you have, if that's what you feel. And so be led by the Holy Spirit in all things. And have accountability in terms of being led by the Spirit. Because some people say, I'm being led by the Spirit, but it's really not the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, let the pastors and the elders of the church test the spirits. And if the pastors and the elders say, you're not operating in what we want you to operate in. You've got to come under that authority. If at any time you start functioning outside of the authority of the elders of that local church, you're in rebellion. And if you start doing deliverance ministry, the enemy will ravage your home. You'll, you'll see your family get ripped to shreds if you're not under the proper leadership and eldership of, of doing deliverance. So be wise when you're casting out demons. Make sure you've got your own house in order. I can tell you stories. I've gone through assistance. I've had people agree to be my secretaries and assistants, and they were not ready. And some of them fell away from the Lord. They got that intense. Want to come work with me? Anybody? Hey, you guys have been great. Thank you. I know I I come with some pretty controversial things and things that maybe you haven't heard and maybe it's rearranging practices and mentalities and thoughts that you have been under for a long time and that's okay i was there i'm not saying i have it all right i'm always open uh, to be made wrong and so the lord can speak and give revelation but he he will confirm his word to you don't take anything i've said at face value take it back to the word and prayer follow the bible and let the lord speak to you individually amen all right let me pray for you father thank you For this opportunity. Thank you for your people, God. Thank you for the hunger. Lord, I pray that you would even equip those who have felt the call to inner healing and deliverance ministry, that this would be another tool in their belt. That this would be another impartation for them to carry on in the ministry and the assignment that you've given them. And Lord, I pray for those who know that they're in a battle, they're in a struggle even right now with fears, with insecurities and with rejection and and the weight of sin and the weight of the harassment of the enemy. God, I pray for great grace today. I pray that You would lift the burdens and that You would expose the plans of the enemy and that we affirm that You've given us all things pertaining to life and godliness by Your divine power. You've given us Your Word. You've given us Your Spirit. You've given us your blood. You've given us your name. So right now, God, I pray, expose pockets of darkness in our lives. We say, here we are. We yield to you. We submit to you. Lord, you alone have the words of eternal life. And God, I pray that you would break the power of the evil one. Lord, I pray that those who came today that are in need and, and they they're, they've been thirsty, I pray for a, a drink of water from your spirit to give them hope, to give them vision. Lord, I pray for those who have laid down vision in their lives to build and to plant and to do. And there's been resistance. I just really feel like what you've been trying to build, there's been resistance and it's been hard and it's been laborsome. And uh, I just wanna say that just as Nehemiah was encouraged by Haggai and Zechariah to continue to build, I pray that today, prophetically, you would receive courage to continue to build, to take your place as a watchman on the wall, even for Jerusalem, and that the sandballots and the tobias that have tried to stop the work uh, would be silenced today in the name of Jesus. Father, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would shut the mouth of the accuser. Father, that you would release angelic help just as when Daniel prayed. That you release the help from your sanctuary and in a proper time the breakthrough will come. So let, let that grace and hope enter the hearts of your leaders and of those who are seeking your face in this hour. I pray for fresh vision. Some of you who have laid down vision and the enemy has stolen away just that vision the Lord gave you. I pray for all the provision necessary for you to do what you want to do. And I just hear, don't be afraid of the people. Don't be afraid of people leaving. Don't be afraid of money leaving. Don't be afraid of there not being enough or the crowd being too small. I believe the invitation is to partner with Jesus and to be a friend of the bridegroom. So Lord, let us not measure our success or our standards based on the world, but on the perspective of heaven which is love and obedience in Jesus' name. Bless you guys. Thank you. We'll see you tonight.